Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 77 of Through the Years, the podcast reviews Ring of Honor, show by show, from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dame. The other familiar voice you will soon hear is Matt Feuerstein, and the other less familiar voice, but maybe familiar to really people that have listened to every episode, because this is their second time on the show, our guest this episode will be someone that they've done a lot of wrestling podcasts. They they make us, Matt, look like pikers. They've done the Pro Wrestling Super Show. They've done Who's Next. They've done the All Japanic Site Series. And, of course, last but certainly not least, they are one half of the Shimmer Herstory podcast. But what they're promoting these days, I mean, in addition to Shimmer Herstory, is uh, the Greatest Wrestler Ever project. And uh, Stephen, Stephen Graham... Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the project? I mean, I know about it because I've been following the first one, but tell Second. tell the people right now. Let's get let's get the plug up front so we don't bury the lead here. Uh, where, what's going on with it right now? So um, back in 2006, uh, a message board called Smarks Choice um, they did a vote on the hundred greatest wrestlers ever, uh, and that was kind of the end of it uh, at the time. Um, but about 2014, 13-ish, I was like, hey, you know, Sight and Sound does, uh, you know, top movies or, uh, every 10 years. I was like, maybe we should uh, bring back the old GWE for 2016. And um, I spoke with uh, Dylan Hales, uh, was the main person that we kind of conversed, and we kind of ran that. Uh, and it was mostly hosted on Pro Wrestling only. Um, we had 150 voters, uh, and it was a hell of a time, but it was like, we only did it for like a year uh, leading up to the vote. Um, and we had a lot of discussion, a lot of conversations. It was a lot of fun. Um, and then, uh, yeah, 2026 is 10 years after that. So we're going to re-vote. Um, but I decided GWE uh, shouldn't be just about putting in a one-time ballot. It should be about um, discussion and fun and discovering new people and sharing your love of certain wrestlers. Um, so we've been kind of starting it early. Uh, a lot of it's ha- taking place on a Discord, which um, uh, I can give you all the link to. Uh, a lot of conversations going on there. And then every weekend, every Saturday at 12, we're doing uh, a watch party together uh, where we take a certain wrestler and uh, put together about two hours of footage of their matches and put it on and have a chat while we watch it and discuss them. Uh, and that's been a whole lot of fun. Um, and I encourage anyone, uh, even if you don't plan on voting or uh, putting together a list sounds scary to you, uh, I think it's just a good community and we're having a lot of fun. And there's stuff that isn't GWE talk, like um, there's a lot of uh, current AEW talk and such as well. Um, that's my my hard pitch right there. Uh, All right, but, but, but Stephen, oh Stephen, let me ask you, um, who is uh, going to win? Who's going to win or who's going to be kidding, my I'm number just one? Oh, well, I do think Daniel Bryan will win. Um, do you really? Was, yeah. Well, he was like fifth or sixth last time, and I think the last ten years have been kind <laughs> to young Daniel Bryan, and I think it has been unkind to Ric Flair, who won last time. So <laughs> I will say it has been unkind to Ric Flair. I'm going to agree with you. <laughs> You know what? Time's been unkind to a lot of us in the last 10 years, but certainly Ric Flair, definitely. But uh, if I could just say something, actually, um, 
So for those who want to get a taste of what like the entire project will look like, and I, I think a project like this, obviously, like you were kind of alluding to, Stephen, the fun is kind of in participating, not the end result. But if you, for anyone, if you go to the Pro Wrestling Only forum, so prowrestlingonly.com, there's an entire sub forum that is just dedicated to this project, including, you know, all the work that was done for the last project. And there, there's like a, there's a discussion thread on basically pretty much every wrestler of any significance you could ever want to see with, and pretty much every thread has some really good insightful comments about it. And sometimes some full out debates, depending on the wrestler, there are links to a bunch of podcasts people did on the last list, including running down their complete 100, you know, you know, all 100 of their votes, like our, our very long podcast, including a bunch of other great wrestling podcasters that participated in the past. Like you, Steven, did a podcast on that. I know, I know uh, Chris Zellner did one from Between the Sheets. And like, there's just like, I would, I did not cast a vote in the last, uh, 100 because I just feel like I'm one of those people where, I read the people who are voting and I get intimidated because I go, I just do not have the breadth and depth of knowledge that those people have. But I would say even if you just want to read and listen to the podcast and chime in here or there on what you do know about, like you could spend days and days and days just on what that on what your project has already contributed just from the last one. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. And uh, yeah, lots of discussion. And if there isn't a thread on someone, um, all you have to do is write up three sentences, recommend three matches, and put them in the nomination thread, and a new thread will be created uh, so they can be voted on. Uh, and also, uh, yeah, the official uh, GWE podcast um, uh, hosted by me will be starting soon. So look out for that on this uh, this the, uh, feed, not the other two, that I believe Trevor would want to plug now. <laughs> yes, uh, you can tell you listen because as always we have three ways to listen to through the years. We have the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network, which is where uh the show Steven's talking about will be on and where we are also on. A bunch of great podcasts are on. That's why you should scri- subscribe to them because you get to hear us, but there's all sorts of other neat stuff that will pop up. But because some people just want us and because it's easier to find our archives that way, we have a feed that is just our show. That is through the years. If you just search that on any of your favorite podcast apps, it will come up. And then finally, we ha- upload our shows to YouTube. And believe it or not, it seems there are now a few people. We get the emails, Matt. There's now like every time we get those emails, it's gone from like someone listened for 60 minutes to now a few people have listened for thousands of minutes since the last time. So there are a few people now. That listen through YouTube. And you crazy people, I don't know why you do it. We have the option for you. It's there. Um, and with that, we can get to the show because, quite frankly, there was no news that took place in the very short time between the last show and this show. So we can get to the show we are covering tonight, which is Dragon Gate Invasion. It took place August 27th. 2005 at the Amherst Pepsi Center in Williamsville, New York, basically right near Buffalo, in front of a reported crowd of 400 fans. Uh, obviously, the big draw of this show was it was the first time ever that Dragon Gate stars would come to Ring of Honor. Uh, that was the big selling point. We'll go to the Pro Wrestling Torch that wrote at the time. Ring of Honor is bringing Shima, Shima, Shima. They keep pronouncing it Shima. I see here everyone else these days pronounce it Shima. So now after listening to three hours of them say Shima, I'm going back and forth on it's confusing me. But anyway, Shima. I, think, I, th- I also think they continue to say Shima throughout all of his ROH appearances. 
Yeah, I mean, nowadays, it, it, everyone says Shima, but, I mean, I guess that this was the the original version of how everyone these days now calls Pac, Pack, Puck, they're calling them everything, and... Uh, well, well, right, Kensuke Sasaki, then we, we realized was Kensuke, right? Like, Well, I don't know if you guys rem- remember this, um, but, but back in Turimon, uh before he changed his name to Sima, C-I-M-A, uh, it was... Uh, something like S H I I M A with right, the last Shima, name. Shima Nobunaga, right? And yes, and and they said this was his U.S. debut, but he definitely wrestled in WCW. Yes, he did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think he wrestled as Shima, not Sima. So right, Shima, yeah, right. The whole Shima Nobunaga full name, because because I remember, I vividly remember Chris Jericho like you know making fun of the name and doing like his you know variations that he would do back in back in the in that era. Yeah, so, so yes. Definitely. Shima's, Shima's debut in America, not Shima's. Yeah, so no, <laughs> that's a good way to split. So if, if I'm inconsistent, I'm going to try just to stick to Shima, but if, I, if I'm if i inconsistent, you should know it's because we just watched a bunch of hours of announcers calling it the other way. But um, back to the torch, Ring of Honor is bringing in Shima and Shingo Tagagi from Dragon's, from Dragon's Gate. Uh, so... So that's the that's the torch. Sapolsky tells the torch, Ring of Honor fans can expect something special from them. Quote, fans can expect to see two fresh, unique, athletic matches, he says. There, this will be a rare treat. We hope the hardcore fans will come down from Toronto and other surrounding areas to Buffalo to see these two, because there is no telling if you will ever be able to see them live again. Obviously. And, 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 and one fan did definitely come down from Ontario, right? Yeah, from uh, I was in school uh, in uh, St. Catharines, which is right by Niagara Falls, uh, and me and my friend Lee Littlejohns and my other friend uh, Trevor Down. uh, Hey, I don't like this. (laughs) Made our I don't like this. Bizarro, Trevor Dame. Yeah, uh, he actually is really happy and likes everything, (laughs) Uh, despite his last name. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, he's he should be Trevor up, but uh. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so it's funny because Ring of Honor did not, as we'll get to soon in the next quote, did not draw very well generally in Buffalo. But as you can see even from Gabe's quote, you know, you would think that this is – of all the, for those who don't know, uh, Canadian American geography, Buffalo's right near the border of Canada and Ontario. It's not, like probably a couple hours if, or if that drive from like, yeah, like yeah. Hamilton, which is a city of half a million people in Canada. It, you know, it's in driving distance of a bunch of Canadians. And so you would, driving you would, distance of Toronto, you know, like that's, yeah. Well, Buffalo Sabres, their, their home games are basically leaf home games. Like it's all Toronto in the crowd. Exactly. Yeah, there are definitely people that it is cheaper for them if they're a Leaf fan to go over oh, the border is. and buy a ticket to a Sabres game when they play Toronto than to watch a Toronto home game against any team. So, yeah, that, that's how close they are. And so it is kind of disappointing in the sense you would think, you know, you could, you're almost double dipping because you got New York fans, but it's the closest market Ring of Honor ran at this time to Canada. It, you know, it would be quite a while yet before they ran Canada proper. And they were still drawing, you know, as we'll see soon see not enough to keep them running here 
it's interesting. In fact, we'll go to the next quote. Uh, the Observer wrote about this. The August 27th show in Williamsville, New York, just outside Buffalo, was a strong show. We'll see about that, Dave. But only mm-hmm. drew about 400 fans. If there was a positive about a disappointing size crowd, is that it was that they were pretty much all fans that went nuts to see Shima and Shingo Takagi from Dragon Gate in their first U.S. matches. There were no sushi chants and the like when you get the fans who only know Japanese wrestling from watching Kenzo Suzuki or other st- stereotypical heel gimmicks over the years on WWE or WCW. So first off, I got to say, man, this is a throwback because um, people would, might think re- hearing that today, especially like younger listeners might think, what, like, Dave's being pretty cynical and weird, but, you know, as we'll talk about in just a few episodes, you know, we are not far away from the era where that was what was kind of expected because, you know, in a few shows, guys, me and Matt are going to cover um, Kenta Kobashi working in Ring of Honor, and the famous story there is that he came to the building with thought, like, everyone's going to boo me because I'm Japanese, so I'm going to have to be, like, this stereotypical sneaky heel foreigner, and so... It is sad, but also a nice sign of how far we've come. We're no longer like the, the expectation is like, oh, thank God no one chanted sushi at a Japanese wrestler and they actually knew who he was and was happy to see them. Like, yeah, not, but the not, WCW. Not that this crowd was short on offensive activity. Oh, yeah. no. There's that. But like WCW, they brought New Japan people all the time. They brought in, uh, they brought in Muda, they brought in Chono, uh, fucking Ultimo Dragon was, a uh, their cruiserweight champion for a long time. I think including WCW on that is just silly. It's kind of funny, actually, like when you think about it, that WCW back then was like portrayed, especially by, you know, WWF and it's like, you know, loyalists as like the the quote unquote, um, you know, I'm not saying this, but like this was definitely how it was portrayed, like sort of like the um, the less um, urbane, like more like um, backwoods fans, you know what I mean? Like old school wrestling fans. And I, um, and they were the ones who were way more accepting of international wrestlers. Do you guys remember like when that. they, they, they decided just out of the blue to create a WCW women's cruiserweight title and just bring in Gaia girls? And that was all it was. I, yeah. Yeah. It, 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 all that stuff is crazy. Um, but, but, but my point is like WWF, which was the WWE, which was the one that was based out of like New York City, and it was like you know Philly and stuff. Like yeah. that was the one that really cultivated the racism in the fan base, like yeah, against sure. against Asians, like and, and you know and to uh, and also um, you know from uh, Latinx people, like just like like just way more ethnocentric than WCW was. Not that WCW was perfect. I'm not saying that at all when it comes to that (laughs) stuff, but like... Well, they got sued for being racist. Yeah, right, exactly. And yeah, I mean, they they were racist in a lot of other ways. Um, (laughs) There's there's plenty to go around. It probably got worse when when, um, certain people got there uh, near the end, but... From um, New York. Yeah, right. But, but like, yeah, Vince McMahon was the one that was like really, really the... um, the the one who was not accepting of international wrestlers, it wasn't American fans at large. Yeah, I I, I think this might be also the way WWE slash WWF cultivated, but I think another difference might be, Matt, to your point, would be, I think there's something about the WCW wrestling fan where, especially back in like the late 80s, early 90s, like if you could, if you were a good wrestler, like they would just accept you. Where in WWF, I think you saw more often... Good wrestlers, if they didn't have a character, because 
they, they would be kind mm-hmm. of just ignored. Like, I guess the example I would use would be like, Great Muda and Jushin Liger got over in late 80s, early 90s WCW when they appeared because they were great wrestlers and those fans were like, hey, these guys are awesome. Where like in WWF in the mid 90s, when they brought in like Taka Mishinoku and Great Sasuke, some of those crowds would see those guys do see incredible things, but they'd still be like, oh, well, I still don't really know who these guys are. They don't have a character. You know, WWF isn't really positioning them as anything special. So, yeah, like, I, I guess that was neat. With you. I agree with you. My point is, like, that's by design. Like, Vince McMahon. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, you know, like, the WCW allowed its its fans to just be like, oh, great wrestling. Yay. Like, and that's kind of what, you know, I think people like us like about AEW now is that those crowds are much more similar to WCW crowds in that, like, if two random people come out that they haven't seen before and they just put on a show, they'll appreciate it. Whereas in WWE, it's still to this day, it's still very much like – we want to see TV stars. Yeah. So uh, next we'll go back to the torch, and this is what I was alluding to earlier. Uh, regarding the August 27th Williamsville, New York show near Buffalo, Sapolsky tells the torch they may not return regularly without better attendance next time. Quote, the crowd response was fantastic. They were a crowd that just came to have fun, get into the show, and just enjoy themselves. If the wrestlers gave them something good and something to respond to, the crowd ate it up. While they were as enthusiastic as the largest crowds we've drawn, we really need another 100 to 200 people for Buffalo to be financially successful. Hopefully we can reach those numbers when we are back on October 15th. And, uh, spoiler, they don't, and then they never run there again, or at least for a very long time. Um, Stephen, why did you let them down? Well, actually, I guess you um, didn't leave them down. You were there. You I was there. there. It wasn't my fault. And Gabe was well, impressed like, you, with your reaction. But did you go back in October? That's the important question. Um, I don't know. I'm going to say that's a probably no then. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll have to look at the card. Like that, that you know, we're, we're talking about Brian Danielson you know, 16 versus years ago. Oh, that's it's funny though. Cause they, oh, you know what? I probably went to this one because school hadn't started yet. Uh, uh, and then the other one would have been when university was on and that would have been pretty hard to do. Gotcha. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, Normally, a lot of times on these B kind of tier or new venue, I mean, locations that Ring of Honor would run, especially if they weren't running that great, they would kind of space out the uh, the shows to kind of let the, hopefully, the anticipation filled up. You know, they're talking here like, oh, if we don't draw something bigger soon, we got to leave. They're coming back in a month and a half, which is fairly quick. You know, they were this is the end of August. They're coming back October 15th. So... And yeah, we'll we'll talk about it then, I guess, but it won't work out for them. But it was a do or die show for it, the audience. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. They were the ones that that were found wanting. But um, although again, Gabe really praised the uh, the people that were there. You know, Gabe maybe that he's just trying to build them up so that they won't not go to the next show. But you know, he really put them over in that quote there. But finally, before we get to the show, one last live note I thought was a little kind of funny. And we'll get, we'll hear more from Andy Hill later. This is a guy who wrote in a live report to the PW Insider. He has some, some hot live scoops. I don't know if you will also have them, uh, Stephen, but Andy Hill wrote to PW Insider, the facility, an ice hockey rink, while not ideal for wrestling, ended up being a nice setting for a show. Our general admission seats were in the bleachers behind plexiglass and we had to climb up through the penalty box to get to them. Oh yeah. Uh, I go to shows all the, like, every time I went to Ring of Honor in, uh, 
in Toronto, um, except for the few times they ran Maple Leaf Gardens, uh, it was always in a hockey rink and you always went through the penalty box. Like that's pretty common fare for uh, shows in this area. Um, so that that's nothing. I, I'm a bad Canadian because I have never played hockey. I mean, I played street hockey. I don't know how to ice skate. I just played street hockey too. Uh, my parents were too cheap, and then I played soccer instead. I've never sat in a penalty box in any context in my <laughs> life. I've never even been to jail. I am ashamed of it. <laughs> but uh, you're but, ashamed uh, you've never been to jail. Well, I mean, I would <laughs> like to be in some kind of penalty box, and that's really the ultimate penalty box. But. Um, you should go to a TNA pay-per-view. You're in jail, <laughs> Trevor. Uh, not yet. We'll give it a few more weeks. But uh, that brings us to the show proper. We can finally get into it. We open with Colt Cabana backstage. He is hyped for his world title shot tonight and reminds us that he's on a winning streak with wins over Spanky, CM Punk, and Nigel McGuinness. Uh, Colt then says that Good Times, Great Memories, his regular talk show, is back from hiatus, and his guest right now is Homicide. Uh, Colt says they're in Chicago, as he always says for all these shows, even though they're never in Chicago, and they're going to fly out after this to Buffalo on Colt's private chartered jet. Um, he should have said they were going to shuffle off to Buffalo. <laughs> Colt's first question. <laughs> Colt's first question is: Has Homicide been spending most of his life living in a gangster's paradise? Uh, Homicide doesn't think so. He he thinks that the hood life. He, he I mean he says I he lives the hood life, but there's nothing paradise about it. Colt then says he can relate to Homicide because they both live thuggish lives. Uh, Colt says when he was 17, he didn't do his dishes. He got grounded by his mom. And then Colt at this point goes on about fighting with his mom over the fact that they already had a cleaning lady. So Colt thought he did not, shouldn't have to be the one to do the dishes. And at this point, as Colt is uh, rambling on about this, the camera does an extremely extreme close, blurry close up, close up of Homicide rolling his eyes. Um, Based on that story that Colt tells, he thinks he and Homicide, they can relate as people. Uh, Homicide can't believe Colt is talking about dishes, and he isn't joking about this. Uh, Homicide says the only dishes he knows are the kind he would eat off of and smash over somebody's head. Uh, Colt says he wouldn't do that to his clean lady. You know, she was a nice Polish woman. At this point, Homicide just continues to be annoyed that Colt considers that a hard life. He thinks Colt is joking around too much. Colt says, well, I do have a joke. He goes up. Uh, why does Snoop Dogg carry an umbrella? And then he just says, for drizzle. And then at this point, Colt calls Homicide his nizzle. Homicide is now very annoyed. Homicide calmly tells Colt not to disrespect him like that, and then points out they're not even in Chicago. Uh, Homicide leaves in disgust. He calls Colt a goddamn joke. Colt debates apologizing to Homicide and thinks to himself about going to a flower store to buy him flowers. Um, Steven, I know you got some stuff to say about this one. I would just say that. No, Stephen, you go on, actually. Okay, well, first, um, it starts with Homicide when he's introduced. He goes, how you doing, Mr. Cabana? And that made me laugh. (laughs) Um, And then it was just, like, a fucking racist segment. Like, it's any, you know, racist white person being like, hey, I relate to you, and then saying nothing that relates to the person. And it, it, it just, it's, it's fucking sucked. Like, on the, on the one, this. on the, on the one hand, you could say, like, it makes Cabana the butt of the joke and that, like, it's obvious that he's not relating. But he's the on, baby but, face. But, but yeah, but on the other hand, Cabana is the baby face in this entire feud. Yes. So yeah. That if he was the heel, it would suck, but it would at least make sense. But, like, Homicide's supposed to be, like, the most evil person in the company. And Cabana is supposed to be the most popular. 
Well, like one of them. Uh, yeah. I, so this was just fucking awful. I think the the thing is, and I don't. I mean, I have no way to track this, but I wonder how many feuds in Colt Cabana's history have started with basically. Other wrestler doesn't like that Cabana jokes too much, gets mad. There's a few. I mean, we just saw Nigel McGuinness. That feud was basically Nigel McGuinness thinks Colt Cabana jokes too much, gets pissed off. There's a feud. And this feud is going to become like a crazy, intense, hateful blood feud with violent yeah. angles. And I think the, the kind of crazy thing. version of that, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think the kind of crazy thing watching this is like. You would think so, the thing that would start it off would be something really crazy, and like there's a this will build to an angle at the end of the show, but the, where homicide you know does something fairly violent. But the funny thing here is if you look at homicides like reactions here, he yeah. never gets that mad. He he's more kind of just like befuddled and maybe even at points slightly amused, like just this guy's a fucking idiot. Like, like you know the whole joke of it, and like you guys were saying, the joke of it, like Matt to your point is basically on Colt, where it's like, this guy really thinks he can relate to me, like his time, his life is, is hard based on that. And, but he's not like screaming. He's not, you know, he's not threatening to throttle him. He's just kind of shaking his head and being like this fucking guy, you know, it, it, and it's crazy how the, the, the tone shifts dramatically to serve the feud afterwards. Almost like, almost like it's like it's stewed in homicide over the night. And he realized like, Hey, like that was really fucked up. Like I'm going to beat the shit out of this motherfucker, you know, kind of like that, I suppose, you know, like, which, you know, you can make a logical explanation for, I suppose. Well, yeah. Like sometimes you don't realize in the moment, like, like you'd have to be surprised at someone saying this shit to you and you, you'd like leave there being like, what the fuck was that? And then over time you think back at it and you're like, that motherfucker, <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm going to kill him. But yeah, like the shit he was saying is basically the stuff you hear on Fox news. And that's, that's never a good thing for a baby face to do. So. Right. right. If, if Cabana wasn't a baby face, you can make the case a little bit more, you know what I mean? Like that, like, yeah, oh, totally. yeah. you know, like he's like playing a trope of like, a clueless, like privileged heel, but instead he's a clueless, privileged baby face. And it's <laughs> who wants who wants to cheer that? Oh my god! Well, we'll see throughout the show who yeah. wants to cheer bad things <laughs> multiple times. Two things we won't see are the uh, two student dark matches that happened before the rest of the show. Oh, man, you missed out. They were great. Bobby Dempsey and Derek Dempsey defeated Pele Primo and Smash Bradley. And Eric Matlock, who I believe was not a Ring of Honor student, but just an indie wrestler, defeated Antonio Blanca. Uh, Stephen, I I think it's a lot. I have a scoop for you. You know who Eric Matlock was? Uh, The detective? Yeah, Andy Griffith. There was me, Andy Griffith, (laughs) wrestled on this show. Stephen, you were in for a treat. I know. He he was doing uh, somersault planches and everything. Um... (laughs) I vaguely remember Blanca because it made me think of Street Fighter, and that made me laugh. <laughs> but that was about it. Uh, I mean, quite frankly, Stephen, when we talk to people that have watched these shows like 16, 15 years ago, that's more of a memory than most people when we ask, like, do you remember something that did not happen on the air? So, you know, you're ahead of the game already. And oh, I was ready know. to say something that didn't happen on the show, but then uh, it, they, like, aired it. So hmm. there is something <laughs> yeah. else we will talk about that did not happen on the show. So we will test your memory again, Stephen, oh, later. Oh, okay. um, but if, if you don't remember, we have plenty of notes about it. But anyway, 
First off, the first match we get to see on the show is the opener. Ricky Reyes defeated Puma, currently known as TJ Perkins, via submission in 7 minutes, 28 seconds, when he made him tap out to a dragon sleeper with a body scissors combination. Uh, Matt, what did you think about this? This is going to be the first match of a pattern we're going to see, particularly in the first half of the show. Uh, uh, basically, this was a lot of people's last shows in Ring of Honor. This was not just, as Stephen was joking about, this was almost a do-or-die show for the crowd. This was kind of a do-or-die show for a lot of undercarders because uh, TJ Perkins would not be back in Ring of Honor for quite a while after this. Yeah, he does show up again, like here and there, right? Like, yeah, but not for a long time. Um, yeah. So, so a lot of times on these shows, like a opening match will get a bit of a bump from the crowd because it's the opening match. You know, I mean, that's true of any wrestling show ever, right? Um, you know, people are excited for a show, so the opening match is hot, no matter who it is. Not this one. Um, uh, this match did not have any heat. Um, uh, I think we talked last show about how, like, for whatever reason, you know, he's a talented guy, but Reyes, during this era in singles matches, just doesn't do it for me. It's just, like, not, um, it's just not that exciting. And I thought this match was, was not that interesting. Like, it was technically fine, I suppose. Like, I, um, it's, it's, it's weird, cause like, these two guys, they definitely have a history together, right? Like, wasn't Puma almost like part of the Havana Pitbulls at different points? Um, in different locations. Like, I'm almost positive I've seen, like, a show where he teamed with them as part of the Havana Pitbulls. Am I wrong about I think that? That sounds familiar. Um, yeah, like, not I in much, like, obviously. Like, but, but, but it does sound familiar. And I would think, would they know each other also from, like, the New Japan Dojo? Like, I... I, probably, that's I, probably why I think they both play. did CMLL together, too. Yeah. yeah so, so there should be some familiarity. But this match didn't... It didn't come off like that. Um, Puma was wearing, um, like... The kind of like those loose pants, like almost like the ones that Rocky Romero wore when he was Black Tiger. Um, oh, because he was doing like um, not just his his outfit, but like uh, like that too, the pants. But his whole like the whole way he worked the match, the whole style, it felt like he was doing an exact Tiger mask ripoff. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's basically sort of what he was doing. And they were like, you know, like Reyes did the the stiff kicks as. As usual, um, Puma did did a bit of a did like a dive at one point. Um, the, they both kind of kicked each other. Puma hit a tombstone at one point, and it actually was probably my favorite thing in the match because it was a very uh, interesting looking tombstone to me. Because usually when someone does a tombstone, they either jump or they kind of like pick up, stand up on their toes and drop down like the Undertaker does, and Puma just like grabbed Reyes and just dropped. And I thought that was a pretty cool tombstone. I, I assume he's not the only person that does that move, but I don't remember seeing it very often. And I thought that was really cool. But otherwise, pretty unremarkable. Uh, Stephen, what did you think? I mean, I, 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 were you like so? I mean, sometimes when you will go a show, see a show live, like the first match is exciting no matter what, just because hey, we're seeing live wrestling. I look forward to this. But as Matt mentioned, like this was a, this crowd that you know gave praises. Not too into this, even with that opener kind of buzz. Yeah, um, I guess because my local indie in St. Catharines, um, they actually were pretty good, and we were going to those shows monthly. Like um, those cards were filled with uh, the the ten count guy and Eric Young and Tyson Dukes and um, uh, Cody Deaner, uh, Beth Phoenix was there. Uh, uh, I forget her name, Angel Williams or um, 
I forget what her name is. And uh, Angelina, Angelina Love. Yeah, Angelina Love. Um, so all those people were there. Uh, so we were Bobby Roode. Um, so like I was watching those people monthly having like awesome shows. So it wasn't like, oh, my God, I'm seeing wrestling live. So any <laughs> match is like uh, going to drive me nuts. Um, so but this was a like it was solid. Like the work was good. Everything. Everybody, you know, hit their stuff. Um, my favorite spot was the uh, Ricky Ruiz did like a spinning set out power bomb that looked really cool. Um, but uh, the thing that <laughs> really uh, really got to me on this one is like there there was a dragon sleeper and the moment uh, Puma tapped out it cut <laughs> and <laughs> like cut to backstage or whatever and it just made me think of. Um, uh, my brother, I remember, I, I was like, there was this match on Nitro. I wanted him to tape for me so I could watch it because I wasn't going to be home. And he like, the moment the three count hit, he cut it. So it, just, <laughs> <laughs> he stopped. So that just made me think of that. So that made me laugh. Um, but overall, like, it, it also felt kind of out of place as an opener, right? Like an opener, you think of either like a match to kind of warm up the crowd and get the crowd into it, or it's like going to be one of the best matches on the show. Uh, and they're just trying to space it out. And this one just kind of felt like a match that should be, like, um, not at the opener. Yeah. Know? Yeah, it just felt like the leftover match, definitely. Um, I agree with both you guys. I thought this was very average. Uh, Matt, we've talked recently about, you used to mention it, like, Ricky Reyes. I don't know, there'll probably be a common theme, unfortunately. He's just fundamentally sound, but kind of boring and and just doesn't really have a hook. Uh, it's funny, you guys, you know, each of you have picked out, like, a, a unique spot you really liked. It's like, oh, that was my favorite point moment in the match. Look at my notes. I wrote, my favorite moment of this match was after a near fall where uh, Reyes didn't get the pin. He just screamed the word crap. And for some reason, a few people in the crowd, that was my favorite moment of the match. So maybe that tells you exactly what I, what I thought about it. Well, but, we'll have to keep an eye out for Reyes' crowd work because I, on the last show, I really, him, really enjoyed him saying that New Jersey stinks like ass. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, his attempts to try and connect are, are, are maybe the best thing he's, he's got going for him in this run so far. But, you know, uh, T, Perkins as Puma was trying to, uh, you know, hit a few cool spots. He, he did, you know, the, uh, tree of woe, big ring tree of woe drop kick, a uh, cool kind of sharpshooter cloverleaf variation where one leg was of his punt was kind of trapped underneath him. And, uh, there was some slight awkwardness too. Like, like you were saying, Matt, about how, you know, you think these guys would have more familiarity. Like there was a moment uh, fairly early on, I think, where, uh, uh, Reyes is on the outside, and, and Perkins is going for this big run. He's going to go through this dive through the ropes, and it looks like Reyes, like, he walked, he jumps back on the apron, and Puma was not expecting that, so he kind of just stops for a second and then just, like, hits him. The, there's, like, this weird hitch where he's like, oh, like, I didn't think you were going to be there right now. Oh, I got to figure this out. But, I mean, it's only seven minutes. It's technically fine, but, and yeah, this would be uh, TJP's last match until in Ring of Honor until 2007, sometime in that, and then he'll do a few matches here or there, but um, we go backstage well, to I was going to say, I was gonna say oh, go um, completely unrelated, um, but if since you mentioned the Tree of Woe, I was thinking last time I saw a match of the Tree of Woe, it sort of made me think, you know, I wish that Joey Lawrence had had a <laughs> like, wrestling run, so he could have done a move <laughs> called the Tree of Woe, <laughs> that's all Sorry. i'm surprised 
there wasn't like a uh, a Shakara commentator that made that kind of joke. Like there had to have been, I bet. Well, I mean, if David Arquette can do it, I feel like Joey Lawrence could have done it. There would have been a. I, I want to see now. I want to see Bray Wyatt if he goes to to Impact or something and do a thing like you know I'm going to bring the Master of Misery and then I'm going to show you the King of Woe and then of course it's a big jo- Joey Lawrence cameo. It's like <laughs> didn't say what kind of woe. <laughs> And people would go, oh, it's so meta. It, it, it's it's the magic Bray is known for. He's again, he's thinking three layers deep. There's so many, you know, it's a comment all about the the story of Blossom and how success, you know, doesn't always last forever. And although now you know, Myron Bialik, you know, in jeopardy. So I mean, you oh, know, I'll I guess success love last does last forever. <laughs> you see some of those comments about vaccinations. Who boy? Oh. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> um, we go backstage to join a somber Nigel McGinnis. He says tonight is a big night for him. He just came up short with Colt Cabana in their recent feud. And that's when the story for him here in Ring of Honor. He has good matches, but he always comes up a little bit short in the win-loss department. He's been here for a year and a half, but he hasn't stepped up to that next level. Uh, he says that the truth is he's getting on. Everyone gets injuries. Eventually, you have to look in the mirror and ask yourself, are you going to be a mid-card guy all your life? Is that what you're going to be? And Nigel says he doesn't want to be 40 years old, barely able to get out of bed, barely able to pay the bills. He wants to make it to the top of this business. And to do that, you have to beat the top guys in this business. You have to beat, you know, the very cream of the crop. Samoa Joe is one of those guys. Nigel says the time for promos is over. In it to win it is passe. He just has to win tonight, period. I thought this was a pretty good promo from Nigel, but I think the two things I know from it. The first was I thought it was kind of – I mean, I guess it's a lot of promos cover this stuff, but I thought it was kind of shocking knowing that night where Nigel's career and his health goes, that already at this early stage, he was already talking about being like physically wrecked at 40 and not making it. Like that would be strangely kind of, you know, prescient from him knowing what happens to him. And I thought the second thing I noticed was for the second straight promo, just like the homicide promo with Cole earlier, the cameraman decided in the middle of this promo to do a random, comically extreme close-up, out of focus zoom in on him. It was as it was like not like in any way well done. Like it was as if the best way I could describe it would be if you would ever like if your grandma was uh, your was asked to like film your birthday party when you were six and she accidentally just leaned on the zoom button and didn't realize it. That was basically the effect this zoom had on this promo. It was just like whoa. What that uh, to Whoa. quote Joey Lawrence, the master <laughs> of woe, woe, um, way too far in. But uh, you know, did you guys have any thoughts about this promo? I mean, oh, yeah, I wrote wrong. down, I wrote down, am I a man or am I a muppet? <laughs> well, so for me, actually, I had a few thoughts because, like, I've realized something watching Nigel's promos, like over the past you know few episodes, his promos are really all over the fucking map during this era, like. You know, he's, you know, cause sometimes he'll be like the over the top, like, heel, like, you know, messing with the crowd, insulting them, which we'll see more of, I think, you know, now that he's, uh, wins the title. But like, then sometimes he'll do a promo like on the last show where it's just like him, like, I've been up 36 hours sniffing glue. I'm ready to kill somebody, like, just like random wackiness. And then there's this really like somber, subdued, like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, I'm, you know, I'm, I feel like, the world is a, is a nightmare, you know, like just like what are those kinds of promos? And it's like, and and I, and I'm pretty sure like this like continues like his promos. I, I, I don't know if I can think of any other wrestler who has more inconsistent promo tone than Nigel McGuinness does. And I'm not even saying that any of them are bad. It's just weird. Like he, he's, he really is all over the map and he's a good yeah, but- promo. It's just like, it's weird. 
Do you, do you, I mean, my memory, I mean, even though I've seen all this is really bad. Do you remember this ever settling into one thing? Like, or do you think, do you think this is just a case of a guy at this stage of his career? He's looking for something that sticks or do you think that's some, is this something do you think that continues for a long time? Um, I think that he'll get more consistent, but like I can think of some promos, like even like a year after this that I'm like, oh wow, that was weird. Like, you know, like that was just different. So like, I do think he gets more consistent, but I don't think, I do think like it, you'll still see examples of stuff like this where it's like, oh, that's that's different and kind of inexplicable. Stephen, do you have any thoughts weird. other than the, oh, I was going to say other than the Muppets? Do you- yeah, other than well, I'm always thinking about the Muppets. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, I, I noted here um, that it's weird that he lost a feud and gets a title match um, the next show. Um, and I know in the match, Prezak tries to explain it. He said, like, he beat this person, he beat this person, so he's getting a title match. But then in the main event, they go on to say that because Colt beat, uh, beat him on the last show, he got a choice between getting a world title shot or a pure title match, and he picked the world title. So, so somehow that means Nigel gets the pure title shot. And I, I wonder if, like, if Colt decided he got a pure title shot, would Nigel just get a fucking world title shot on this show? Like, I don't understand the consistency of the booking here. It makes no sense to me. Yeah, I, I mean, back the contender circle slash ring. <laughs> slash, I'm not, no, other things. Ballot. <laughs> but I mean, I, the it's hard to always consistently get the Ring of Honor website on the way back machine, so I don't always get good stuff from there. But so they might have written things there at the time that I. uh have not am not able to read nowadays but i can tell just from us watching at each show like on the last show they really emphasized that the winner of the colt nigel match gets to not just gets a title shot they get to choose you know what title they have but matt i don't you know you just watched that show with me i don't think they ever emphasized or even mentioned the idea that the loser would get a title yeah, shot title. like like the leftover, you know, <laughs> and so yeah, it is it is bizarre, especially when the way this works out is at the end of this night, the guy who won that feud doesn't have a title. The guy who lost that feud with the stip that the winner gets a title shot now has a championship at the end of this night. So I'm gonna guess just from like again, I don't remember this specifically, but I'm gonna guess just from like you know reading the ROH newswires a lot back then that it was probably just something like. You know, Nigel McGuinness showed such great effort in that match, and that was such a great match. And both, both, you know, even though we lost, um, both competitors were winners in that feud, so Nigel deserves that shot. And Samoa Joe wants to give it to him after their last great match against each other, something like that. Like that would be my hunch is how they explained it on on the internet. Yeah, well, we we can only guess, Matt, because so much of that lost in the sands of time, but not lost in the sands of time. A four quarter survival match. Chad Collier defeated Davey Andrews, Jimmy Jacobs, and Kevin Steen in 10 minutes, 34 seconds, when he made Andrews tap out to the Texas Cloverleaf. Uh, again, continuing a trend, this was Kevin Steen's last match in a Ring of Honor for quite some time, well over a, a year. And uh, I have a few comments he made about that. But uh, first, Stephen, you should get to go first on this match. Uh what do you think about this? This I, I I will say as someone that watched all we've now seen all the Kevin Steen matches in Ring of Honor basically up to this point in this run, this was the match that definitely he felt like he had the best connection with the crowd. Yeah, that yeah the crowd was into Steen definitely in this match. Um, let's see my comments. Uh, Davey Andrews in this match seems out of place. Chad Collier um, for someone who uh, isn't paying as much attention. 
like I'm basically going through this through your podcast. He seems out of place in this match too. Um, but uh, so it's an interesting uh, group of uh, four-way people, and it, it was an interesting way to start, where it's just like Andrews and Collier doing mat work. Um, uh, it definitely picks up a lot when uh, Jacobs and Steen are in it, and I, I find it very interesting at this time when they keep calling Kevin Steen big, when he's <laughs> like not really that much bigger than anyone else, and he ends up getting much bigger. So it's just very weird to kind of hear that commentary. <laughs> Um, and I found it interesting, like, um, Collier and Andrews, they both, like, blind tag themselves in, because I, I guess you have to be in the ring to win, right? But earlier in the match, they both tagged themselves out, so it, it, they don't, like, they don't, they don't seem to be very smart. But Jimmy Jacobs, if you pay attention, is the only one in this match who never tags himself out. He's always bland tagged out, and he, he always tries to get in there. And when he's in the ring, he, like, knocks people off the apron so they can't break up the pin, so... Uh, Jimmy Jacobs using his husk brain uh, a lot in this match, um, but none of that really mattered because about the last quarter of the match, everyone was just in the ring hitting stuff. Um, uh, they did a point where uh, Steen was going to go for a dive, but uh, Jacobs tripped him up, so they kind of teased it, and then Jacobs did his tope, which looked good, but then Steen did a cannonball at the top, so uh, they paid that off well. Uh, Jimmy Jacobs did like a complete... Chief J Stronghold Wahoo uh, huss up, um, but then gets hit by the Mr. Peepers driver. I just wanted to say that name. Uh, <laughs> Frazak admits that that's just Punk's name, and he was like, I don't know if that's actually what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> Which was funny. Uh, so it all just kind of breaks down, and then eventually, uh, oh yeah, Jimmy Jacobs goes for a counter code, and he's just kind of tossed to the floor. Uh, and then Andrews misses a springboard drop kick, and Collier puts on the Texas Cloverleaf, and we get a submission, and immediately it's El Generico coming to the ring. Yeah, uh, I, I thought this was a very standard four-way, Ring of Honor four-way, slightly above average as a wrestling match, like just decent. It, it was it was fine. It, you know, it had all the usual four-way tropes where they adhere to tags at first, it breaks down the final minutes, there's a few multi-man spots, there's a few dives to the floor. Um I do think the story of this match in some ways is uh, Kevin Steen. Well, to, and to a lesser degree, Jimmy Jacobs, because like you said, Stephen, I think, you know, Chad Collier just kind of dominating this, the young Ring of Honor student, Davey Andrews, that's fine. But like the match is always more fun whenever it's Jacobs and Steen step in the ring, particularly I would say Steen. And I would say the story of this is I watched uh, some clips from some old Kevin Steen shoot interviews, and he's done a lot of them to uh, get his kind of thoughts on, this being the end of his first ring of honor run. And he said, I think he, he basically, he, he said, didn't quite say it clearly, but I think what he basically said in one of the shoots was, um, that he kind of knew going in, this was going to be his last ring of honor match because he, the way he says he and generico, they weren't getting booked on every show, but basically like after every booking, they'd be able to say to Gabe, like, Hey, like when's our next date? And Gabe would always have a date for them. And so he said like, this time we were like, okay, what's, where are we doing after Buffalo after this Buffalo show? And Gabe said, oh, I'll have to get back to you guys. And he, so he was like, we basically knew at that point, this was probably going to be it. And Steen said, you know, this run had been going well for him. You know, he was talking about how on this run, it was a lot of your third match on the show. Although ironically on this show, he's the second match on the show. You know, you got 10 minutes. Don't, you know, do too much. Don't burn out the crowd. And Steen, you know, he said, he just felt like he wasn't himself. And he said, this match, I decided, fuck it. 
I'm just going to go out there and I'm going to be myself. And if you, if you watch this, this, uh, this match, from the second he steps to that curtain, he's talking to everybody. He's talking to the cameraman. He's talking to the crowd. When he take bumps, he takes bumps, he's like making extra loud yells and stuff. And I know some people don't like that about Kevin Steen on the indies, but that it wins this crowd over. Like the crowd at first, there's a few people booing him and there's a few people kind of not reacting to him. By the end of the match, in the final few spots he does, he's just getting cheers. Like he, he definitely wins the crowd over. And on the shoot where he talks about this match, he's like, you know, it worked. He was saying like, I was actually being myself and the crowd was, you know, responding to me in a way they had never done in any other of the matches I had in ring of honor. And yeah, I think he's the standout performer in this match. You know, he does some cool spots and, you know, just his usual offense worked into a four way, but like he does like a big senton forward senton to the floor, stuff like that. He gets a couple Mr. Wrestling chants late in the match but overall, standard four-way, I think it's most notable just for being that very small piece of kind of Kevin Steen career history. But, Matt, what did you think about it? Yeah, I mean, you pretty much said what I was going to say about this is this is about Kevin Steen, like, clearly being a different version of himself than he has been in any previous ROH appearance and mm-hmm. standing out as being, like, a, a really great performer. And, you know, I guess, like you mentioned, there were just people that didn't like that aspect of Kevin Steen when he was on the Indies, but... You know, I guess Gabe was one of them because, like, I, I would always want to ask Gabe, like, why after this would be the time that you feel like Kevin Steen isn't worthy of more booking? Because he, like, he clearly did a great job in this match. It wasn't a great match, but that wasn't his fault, you know, and he clearly got over. And I I would have been like, OK, we're going to definitely see more of him if I didn't already know that we weren't for another year and a half. Well, you know, Gabe like, is anti-Canadian, very clearly. <laughs> I mean – is, do you, or actually, I, mean, I know you might be joking, but like, is you do you actually believe that might be true? <laughs> well, if, if you're, I mean, in no, that, I don't believe that's true. But like, yeah, but like, Steen and Generico both like, especially like, is Generico back after this? Is am I spoiling things? No, no, no. no. Back for over a year after this too. Yeah, like yes. fucking like Generico. Oh seven, oh, oh uh, six, I think. Yeah. There's no way you can watch that Generico homicide match and go. Yeah, we don't need this generico guy. We need more call, uh, Chad Collier. Like, you're fucking insane if you think that. <laughs> well, actually, you and I might disagree on that homicide patch. We'll, we'll, um, we'll get to that yeah, in a minute. <laughs> but, but I will but say, I oh, go on, Matt. Oh, did you have more to say, Matt? Sorry, I think I talked over you. No, I just said, I, I said, I, um, I said, Stephen and I might disagree about the Generico match, but I definitely feel that way about Steen. Like that, there's no way you could watch this and be like, oh yeah, we don't need any more of this guy. I, I, well, a couple of things I could say. First off, I think it's pretty clear Gabe did like Generico more than Steen in this run because I think he gave Generico a little bit more opportunity in terms of match. Although they did have some singles, similar for big singles matches for sure. Yeah, and also when when um when uh these guys do come back, it's Generico first in late 2006. In fact, in uh, Steen will talk about in like early 2007 when he's in CZW, he proposed a gimmick to Gabe where he's like, "Could I come in as part of the CZW feud?" And his idea was, "I want to be the one wrestler in CZW who's like, I hate CZW. Please, Ring of Honor, book me." And Gabe was like, "You could do that in CZW, but I don't really see that." you being a part of this right now like like even and this was when he was when he was starting to give shots to generico again and it's eventually you know he finally gives them a big shot with a steen generico versus the briscoes match and and the way steen tells it is like he doesn't have a great relationship with gabe but he also doesn't have a bad relationship with him and the way he puts it he doesn't really put with any malice is he's like 
Gabe is busy and he sees Gabe as a guy who like, he has a lot of time for you if you're valuable to him. And he was saying like in this run, you know, he was saying Gabe didn't really talk to me and generic Harley at all, but he was also kind of saying, well, we were also, you know, low on the card guys, but he, he always talks about like, once they had that first match with the Briscoes in 2007, instantly they come back to the curtain. Gabe wants to book them for every show. And he says for the whole rest of that run till Gabe got fired, like Gabe was really great to them. So it was one of those things where it was almost just like, and I think a switch has to flip. Exactly. Yeah. And I think people would say, you know, you could look at that with Chris Hero or a lot of other wrestlers where there are wrestlers Gabe has not gotten. And then when he does get them, to his, you know, to his discredit, there's been a few times he's kind of not seen a guy when other people have, but to his credit, when he does see it, he doesn't go, well, I didn't see it, so I gotta kinda keep up appearances. Like, once that switch flips, he's all in, generally. Yeah, Hero was like. definitely the other one I was thinking of that I could, um, that is kind of analogous to Generico and Steen. With Hero um, and Steen, I wonder if there's like that, um, wrestling, uh, they have to have a great body. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that was part of it. Like, there's a bit of body, um, body bias. And, you know, obviously, you know, uh, Hero is not Canadian, so I guess it is not an anti-Canadian <laughs> bias. It is, yeah, maybe it's, maybe it is the, the look thing. But I mean, name another Canadian they booked. Um, Kenny Omega? <laughs> <laughs> a, years so. later. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, the only other thing to note here is, uh, uh, Jimmy, early on in the match, he tries to start a BJ chant for his, you know, tag team champion partner, BJ Whitmer. And Praz- Dave Prazak on commentary, your commentary for the show was Prazak and Lenny Leonard. Uh, Prazak mentions Whitmer's in Japan with pro wrestling Noah on his first tour there. And that'd be great to see some Noah wrestlers in Ring of Honor. So we're getting a little, you know, allusion to what we will see. We will soon, we will soon see a lot of pro wrestling Noah wrestlers in Ring of Honor. But, uh, moving on. Well, we last get- time I was here, uh, the commentary is, like a billion times improved. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, this is this is the le- this is like the legendary comment uh, commentary team of this early ROH era, Leonard and Prazak. So like, we have finally gotten to the era where the commentary is uh, inobtrusive at the very least. Yeah, and we're- <laughs> but, uh, in Shimmer, it's uh, Prazak and Danger, and it's one of the best commentary teams I've ever heard. And Prazak's just amazing. And, right, uh, he's, he's he's much more subdued in ROH. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, just, he's not like you know when he's in game changer <laughs> wrestling yeah. nowadays he's uh, a little different back then and we're just entering the era of you know dave and lenny solo like this is one of the first shows where apart from one brief like couple lot sentence run-in from gabe it's just praise zach and lenny from beginning to end on the show you know we had a period where it was Dave and Lenny, but then Gabe would tag in for Lenny for a few matches. That 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 era is coming to a close for the yeah, most yeah. part. Yeah, he still does that a couple more times, but this yeah, it's pretty much done. Um, and that brings us to our next match. Homicide defeated El Generico via pinfall in 14 minutes, two seconds after hitting a lariat. So um, it's my turn to go first, and it's funny because I feel like we 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 basically we know it's going to be a split between Matt and Steven, and I'm the tiebreaker. Uh, I'm going to be on Matt's side here, not to, to support my boy. Oh, I, I did say the match was great. I just said that Generico is someone that you should push. I, I think this was, <laughs> you know what? I might be inclined to agree with you because I'm going to say this was disappointing. I think it was slightly above average as a match, but for El Generico and Homicide, I think you yeah, see that match on paper and see that they get 14 minutes. You go, that's going to be a, a friggin' banger. And it's nothing close to that. And I will say, going to your thing, supporting your point, Stephen, 
I would put that more on Homicide, which is strange because Homicide's one of the most consistent wrestlers, I would say, on the indies or period around this point. And here's the weird thing. The weird thing I would say about this match is Homicide's a wrestler, I think, who more than most puts in like top effort almost every time he's out there. And while I wouldn't say he mails it in on this match, the way I would describe it is he works this almost like it's a syndicated, like, C-level wrestling show from a major promotion. And he's a house, going to, a house show vibe. I wrote that. Oh, I, I definitely wrote house show vibe on my <laughs> my notes, for sure. And, and he's going over an enhancement talent. And yeah, I, like, he's giving them a bunch of stuff, but you know he's winning in the end. And this is just a house show. Like, keeping the local guy kind of, like, make him look like something. But Hamazai's not really, like, he's not going to make him look great. He's just going to give him some offense. Yeah, it totally felt like that. Yeah, and, and he doesn't eat him up, but but he also doesn't really treat him like a threat. Like, they're, like they're, I guess the way to describe it is there's a late, like, Homicide usually is always making, you know, again, really puts him all of himself into things. And he's treating this like it's not really that big of a deal or that big of a threat. Like, he's kind of joking around with the crowd. Um, he, he uh, There's not a lot of urgency from him. You know, in this match, when he's on offense, it's kind of slow and methodical. Even the finishing stretch doesn't really pick up and have as much wow factor as you'd hope. It just feels like, like it doesn't. The homicide's not treating this like it's a like it's a big match. And normally, one of the things that makes homicide great is even on a on this slot in the card, he will treat a match like it's big and like it's really important for him to give, you know, a top notch effort and. That's not what is done here. Um, he does lay in a whooping on Generico. Like, Generico gets a nasty welt on his back early on. Homicide really gives some hellacious kicks to the back during the match. Uh, there's a fun spot during the match where Homicide and Generico keep running to the corner, and ho- Generico keeps, like, jumping over Homicide and then getting Homicide with these little slaps, and Homicide just gets more and more progressively angrier, which, which is fun. But, um... Yeah, it's just, it's one of those examples where if there's a service this podcast can occasionally do, it's like, I think we find watching the shows that all the matches people remember to be great with rare exceptions are still great. But there are matches like this where people will look and go, why hasn't anyone talked about Homicide Generico wrestled in 2005? That's got to be great. And often the reason why no one talks about it is because it actually isn't, unfortunately, that great. But, uh, Steven... Uh, you know, uh, kind of maybe mischaracterized your, your opinion of this match. How about you go next? You kind of clarify what you think about this match. Yeah, so um, I think we talked about it a little bit, but um, Jer- Generico is very good, um, and he does a lot of really good stuff in this. He has a lot of charisma uh, under his mask. Like the, You mentioned the sequence where he was like, uh, jumping out of the way and then slapping Homicide and pissing him off. But, like, the reaction of his face, where he's just like, oh, fuck. Um, <laughs> why, I don't want to keep slapping you because it's making you matter, but, like, you're giving me this opportunity. Um, so, like, all that kind of stuff was good, and, like, the dives he hit and all the moves he hit were, all looked really good. Um, um, and so, I, I think Generico just, he looks so good, he's so charismatic, um, even if the match wasn't great, it was just like kind of a an okay match. Um, I don't know how you don't see that when you're watching it. Um, but as for the match, first of all, Homicide did not do the Code of Honor. Uh, so that was shameful. 
He spits uh, on his middle finger and then taps Jericho's hand with it and goes, there you go, bitch. And I like how petty that was. Like, he technically did something, but it was the most <laughs> ridiculous. It's, it's the thing you would do as an eight-year-old if, you're, if your parents told you you had to, like, shake the hand of a bully you didn't like. Like, that's what you would do. It, it, it is so childish. Yeah, and speaking of such, he was wearing a Lucha Libre t-shirt to even mock Generico even more. Uh, and he also started the match like Aja Kong, just throwing him to the floor and, and kind of tossing him around. But even that, like like you said, it didn't have the intensity that you would expect Homicide tossing someone to the floor and beating them up around ringside would have. Um, uh, it, it's almost like Homicide knew Generico was leaving. Um, before this match happened and wrestled it that way. Maybe maybe he had a talk with Gabe. Um, but yeah, Generico's good and regardless, even if uh, this match isn't great. Matt, what what do you think about this? Um, yeah, there's a, a high amount of incongruity, like you all said, between what you would think about this match if you saw the two names on paper in the year that it took place and the actual match that they had. Um, you know, but and I'll make this point a little bit more later, but like that's pretty common in ROH in this era, um, depending on position on the card. But I'm gonna I'm gonna save my bigger point on that until a little bit later. But um, yeah, this is this. I mean, like you said, it's this, this is homicide that made the match not so great, not because he's not good, but because he chose to have a very loose and laid back, like just I'm just gonna have fun. Whereas I'm sure if he said to Generico, okay, let's go tear it down, you know, homicide's the one with the status in this match. So like, so Generico would have been like, yeah, whatever you say, man, like, let's do it. Like, and I'm sure he would have been game and homicide just, you know, he obviously led the match and it's not like he ate Generico up, but he was just like, he was just chilling, you know, he yeah. was just like having some fun walking around, like be like acting silly. And then, then they just did some moves in between that. And, you know, like always with these matches, it gets more intense down the stretch. Um, but like, you know, even like homicide, he hits a couple of short arm clotheslines that are pretty weak by his standards. And then he hits a regular lariat for the win that's much more forceful. So I guess he makes up for it. But like, I guess this was just Homicide's chance to just showcase his personality a little bit. Like just, just be, be, have some fun around there, which is also kind of funny when you think about it, because this is also like we said, when he's supposed to be getting mad about what Cabana did to him. <laughs> But he yeah, he's just, just like, joking he's with the fans. least mad that he ever seems during this match. <laughs> yeah. Um, did, yeah, not that good. Did he ever have a Ring of Homicide shirt? I'm not sure. If he That's did, a missed it, opportunity. It would have been like probably uh, a year after this, but I don't know. That's a missed opportunity right there. Well, there was a show called – they named the show Ring of Homicide, like one of their uh, events. They named two of them Ring of Homicide. That's right. Fact, Ring of Homicide 2 also, yeah. In fact, Ring of Homicide 2, I believe, is Gabe Sapolsky's final Ring of Honor show ever. So, uh, <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> so um, I, I, one thing I'll mention just – Matt, your talk got me thinking about this is – Again, I was researching that Kevin Steen stuff with his shooter views, and going back to that quote I mentioned he said earlier, he said Gabe told him during this first run, you know, he usually told me, like, your third match on the show, you got 10 minutes, and, and the last thing was, don't, you know, do too much and, um, yeah, and burn out the crowd. At this topic, but yeah. Yeah, so we'll, we'll save it for then. But I, I think it is interesting in the sense of, I feel like more indies these days more, are more the PWG vibe where it's like, they don't worry about how the whole show plays. The idea is just like every match, do whatever you want, try and steal the show. And if it's going to be tough for someone to follow, that's the next wrestler's problem. That's their job to figure out where back here at this point, especially with ring of honor. And I think a lot of other 
promotions, there was more thought of, you know, don't burn out the crowd. In fact, you know, we've talked about in like the early years of Ring of Honor, there was quotes from guys like Samoa Joe and Brian Danielson about sometimes they'd be mad about like if the semi-main event was some crazy scramble match where they did 18 million things. I think, I think Joe famously once said to Gabe after watching one of those scrambles, like, great, now I have to go out there and shoot homicide with a gun to top that. Like, like they were not, they were not always happy with the idea that they would have to follow something absolutely insane. I think sometimes they booked with that in mind that we can't do everything, but Matt, I know you said a lot of other things later, but I have something I want you to talk about right now, which is our next match. Curry Man defeated Shingo Takagi via pinball in 12 minutes, 10 seconds after he hit the spicy drop, which was Curry Man's finisher, which is basically like, imagine a burning hammer, but instead of the guy landing on like his head and neck, he just gets, keeps rotating and just lands safely on his face, on his stomach. Um, so before the match begins, this was originally booked to be Christopher Daniels versus Shingo Takagi. Uh, Daniel's music plays. He doesn't come out. Ref Paul Turner comes out from the back. He talks to the ring announcer, Bobby Cruz. Cruz says, Daniels is unable to attend this evening. Turner has Cruz announce his replacement. And then Curry Man comes out to Gorilla Radio by Rage Against the Machine. For those who do not know Curry Man, that was uh, Christopher Daniels' frequent gimmick in New Japan and uh, Mishinoko Pro. And the gimmick is basically... Christopher Daniels, but he's wearing a mask with a little cloth curry bowl on the top of his head. He wears a shirt that says, you know, I am hot, I am spicy, I am delicious, Ichiban number one. He likes to dance a lot, which is really strange because he's dancing to Rage Against the Machine's That's, Gorilla Radio. Yeah. Which I don't know. When is Rage Against the Machine a dance number? Yeah, <laughs> and he's not like doing mosh dance, he's like just doing like comical hip swiveling, getting down to, to I mean, I'm not to say you can't dance to that song, but it's just you would not guess that. But anyway, um, Matt, what'd you think about Shingo's first match? Uh, and this was also, I guess, I guess a little more quick background. Very first match. Yeah, for for those who are thinking about, um, you know, Shingo, oh man, you know, New Japan World Champion, great super worker, Shingo. This he had wrestled, I think, for maybe. 10, 8, 9, 10 months by this point, and he would win uh, Wrestler of the Observer's Rookie of the Year for 2005, but he had wrestled less than a year at this point, so that's another thing to keep in mind on this match. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's funny, because you think this is, like, the rookie in this match, and he turns out to be maybe the biggest star of anybody on the show, right? Um, in, in some ways, you know, I mean, he's, like, yeah. right right now, you know, somebody that people would consider on the, a candidate for best wrestler in the world, right? Yeah. Um, and um, right here, he's just a rookie. I'm going to say something. I don't know. Maybe it's controversial. I don't know what you think. But, like, I am not a fan of Curry Man. Uh, I think it's a stupid gimmick. I don't think it's particularly funny. And I don't think that comedy is Christopher Daniels' strong suit. And he, like, he does try to put a lot of comedy into this. Is it just me? Like, I think I think Curry Man kind of sucks. I I, I... I think Curry Man is fine, mostly because I think most Curry Man matches, or at least a little bit I've seen, it's not that different from Daniel. Like if you, like this match, is there much different from the fact that he kind of dances a little bit before and after the match, and he wears well, a mask? I, think, I mean, just like the, the the Curry Man shtick that he does, I think takes it down. Like, yes, the wrestling is the same, but I think the match would have been better if it was Daniels, because like Daniels is, you know, yes, the moves and stuff are the same, but like the presentation. Um, 
And I think it, I think it takes away a little bit. I, you know, and they're, they're doing their little, like, you know, the announcers are laughing along with it. I don't know. I'm sure it's just me, but I am, and the announcers, you know, really sell that like Daniels and Curry Man are different people. Yeah. Which, you know, which is, I, I don't know. I mean, whatever. It's, uh, as far as the match, um, to me, it's another example of like, I mean, part of it is that, that Shingo is, you know, green, you know, he's really good for his, for his, um, experience level at this point. Like he's, I mean, considering how long he'd been wrestling, he was fucking great, but like, he's still very inexperienced. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of shtick in the match and like, they're obviously not going for it. You know, like, they're not trying to have a great match. They're trying to have a, a good match with, you know, with some physicality. And you're right. Current man does a lot of, um, Christopher Daniels spots, you know, Step Up and Zaguri, the Blue Thunder Power Bomb, the BME, you know. I thought that was um, but, very nice of him to do that because we didn't get to see Daniels, so he got to <laughs> get some yes. Daniels tribute spots. That's right, yeah. He also does this spicy drop, which I wrote down, but I don't actually remember what it was. Um, oh, it's a, it's like a burning hammer type of yeah. thing. And that that's how he wins. Um, you know, and, and Shingo was allowed to get, you know, some big offense, but I, I didn't think the match had a ton of direction. And what I thought it was missing more than anything was like a sense of urgency, like a sense that like it mattered. Um, but it was well executed. So I thought the match was, was pretty good. But, you know, I mean, again, another one where if you see these two guys on paper, you're like, oh, this is probably not as good as it could be. I, I, I think this is basically at the level of everything we've seen apart from the, the opener. I would say just like just a tiny bit above average, but nothing particularly special. You guys felt like the last match was like a house show match, and I thought that match was more like this very fine line, a syndicated C level show match. I thought like I agree, I felt like this felt like a house show match. It was fine, it was basic, it was simple. The crowd enjoyed it enough, um, but nothing particularly special. Shingo, the, I guess the most fun was Shingo, and he, yeah, he is not the Shingo obviously that he would become, and it would be crazy to expect a guy less than a year in to be. But he has a, re- a pretty nice power slam here. Um, his gimmick at this point is really heavy, just on the muscle stuff, which is funny because I mean, it's he, like he's, he's a member of the Body Donnas. Yeah, yeah, like his whole entrance, which gets over, involves him like posing to the beats of his music. He has like brings like gear to help him do push-ups. He does push-ups during the match. Like his whole gimmick is just muscle guy, and it's funny because like he's not that muscle. He he has huge thighs. He has thighs For like Dragon Gate. He's muscular. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but but it's funny like to know again. You know, Shingo now is just kind of serious. His gimmick is just he's goddamn Shingo and he's awesome. But back then, you you know, starting out, he very much was more of a everyone has a one thing gimmick kind of guy. And he had that. But, you know, he got over, you know, decently enough. Uh, and the fans all knew who Curry Man was and loved him. In fact, that goes to the Observer point. Dave would write in the Observer. Daniels came out doing his Japanese Curry Man gimmick and everyone knew it and understood, which also show, shows what a specialized crowd this was. Curry Man won the match, which also got great reviews. Again, I wouldn't, uh, Stephen, I guess we'll go to you now. Uh, did did it, did you think the match was great? And but I, I do think it did seem like to your. I mean, not. I don't know if it, I should say credit. I mean, I don't know if it's like deserving of praise. But yeah, it did seem like this was not a crowd that was like what Curry Man. It was like everyone instantly knew the joke. They knew Curry Man. You know, they knew it was Daniels. That Daniels did not, in fact, no show them. So well, I think that even was even if you didn't know who Curry Man is, 
you could tell, like, yeah. it's fucking Daniels, right? Like, doing a stupid gimmick, even if you didn't know who Kurimon is. So I don't know how much credit you want to give people for, like, <laughs> realizing what Christopher Daniels looks like with a mask. Um, you know? Well, I don't think it's yeah, that hard. He does have a pretty distinctive, like, upper body shape and, like, his yeah, neck yeah. and stuff like that. He has a pretty long neck. Like, uh, he, he, he does stand out, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't think it – this is not, like, you know – Back in the day when I didn't realize Crush was the same person from Demolition, um, <laughs> like, like no one in the crowd was eight, you know. <laughs> wow, yeah, I mean Repo Man took me a minute, but Crush I figured out with the same name and everything, you know. Oh, I know it's the same name, but I didn't realize it at the like right away. Like it, it took me because he was a babyface from Hawaii. He wasn't like a badass from Parts Unknown, um, so it didn't make it, didn't realize it was the same person. Um, but yeah, you know, I was. I was one eleven at the time, so cut me a break. Um, yeah, let's see my notes. Oh yeah, uh, Kurimon did a Kyoko Inoue uh, springboard back elbow, so that, that made was me happy. cool. Um, that moved really cool. Kyoko Inoue with the best offense and the most bizarre offense in the history of wrestling. So anytime anyone steals any of her moves, that's that's a big bonus for me. Uh, and also, there um, you mentioned about Kurimon working differently. There there was. Um, he did do a push-up contest with Shingo, which he lost. <laughs> um, so that was, that was a big guffaw moment, I guess. Um, but yeah, like you guys said, it's uh, another match that was, you know, it wasn't bad. It wasn't, um, but it wasn't anything that's going on my database. Yeah. Um, after the match, Curry Man gets on the mic and he sounds a lot like Christopher Daniels. I mean, <laughs> continuing the joke, he's not even trying to change his voice or anything. He's, he goes, I excuse my English, even though he's speaking in pitch perfect English. Um, he's only wrestled in the U.S. once. Uh, Curry Man says his partner, Brian Danielson, which would have referring to they used to team together in the juniors division in New Japan, um, told him about this place, Ring of Honor, and he's won to show his face here for a long time. He puts over Shingo and then asks him to please come back. Uh, the crowd chants the same for Shingo. Curry Man also says, Brian also told him about this thing they do in Ring of Honor and offers his hand to Shingo and then they actually shake hands. So technically, this is Christopher, you know, they're going to continue this angle that Christopher Daniels does not shake hands for like another 20 plus shows. But technically, if you want to be literal, the first Ring of Honor handshake for Christopher Daniels is actually right here to Shingo. Um, Curry Man doesn't know if he'll ever get a chance to come back to Ring of Honor, but if he does, he will dance his ass off for each and every one of the fans. And at that point, Shingo uh, dances again. So yeah, I was actually I was actually at the next show that um, Curry Man appears on in a, a couple months after this. And um, the other thing is Shingo, we kind of will get to see him grow as a wrestler in ROH because he gets a pretty extended run starting in like either late, like late 06, 07. Like he gets a pretty extended run in ROH. Um, where he has a lot of matches, and you kind of do get to see him develop during that period. Yeah, Shingo basically goes on like a year-long excursion in the U.S. Indies, and Ring of Honor is a big part of that. So we will we will see that in the future. Um, Ring of Honor pure title match next. Nigel McGuinness defeated Samoa Joe via pinfall in 14 minutes, 46 seconds, after he hit the Tower of London. Yes, in fact, Nigel McGuinness wins the title from Samoa Joe, uh, you know, maybe fans didn't realize how big a moment this would be in Nigel's career at this moment, but it turns out to be started kind of a career defining run from him. It all begins here. Uh, <clears throat> Steven, what did you think about the match? I would like to open up a discussion on why 
um, you all are so accepting of the pure rules, which are, um, I think, throughout this match, are kind of uh, weird and bizarre. Um, and why you guys shit on the European rounds match. Hey. Well, Trevor, I, Trevor certainly did not shit on the European rounds match. He liked it more than anyone in history, so I should. Well, good on him, because yeah. I think those rules in the European rounds match make a lot more sense than the pure rules. I, I mean, my, my, my issue with the European rounds match wasn't the rules; it was just how it was worked. Whereas Trevor thought it was worked brilliantly. Okay, I, well, I haven't seen that particular one, um, but I've seen a bunch of European rounds rules matching these pure rules. Um, I don't know if you want to get my notes about them but they're used poorly or like weirdly in this match um so like first of all there's no closed fist right yeah but like we've seen a hundred closed fists on this show <laughs> so like banning something that we've seen a hundred times on one show seems rather bizarre um so that's one um, but yeah uh joe loses around uh one of his rope breaks because he he does a punch or, or whatever. Uh, yeah, so basically the rule is like your rules, if you do one closed fist, you get a warning. You do more than one, you lose a rope break. Okay, so he does his first punch, and he, he gets a warning, I guess. Um, uh, and then we get to a point where uh, Nigel is... Um, he, he gets put in an arm breaker. Oh, so they do the spot where he uh, he's going to do the jumping lariat off the uh, off the ropes, uh, the springboard lariat, whatever you call it. Uh, and then... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he goes for that, and then he uh, um, Joe tries. Joe catches him with a, a like catches him off of it instead, and then puts him in an arm breaker, and then uh, he gets he goes to the ropes to break. So he he loses a rope break there, um, and then they repeat that spot later. Uh, but the other two people. So that that was that was neat, I guess. Um, but then there's a point where uh, Nigel bails to the floor. And then Joe goes for a tope, and he gets hit by a fucking chair, and that counts as a single rope break? Yeah. So, like, literally you could start the match, hit him with the chair once, <laughs> hit him with the chair a second time, that's two rope breaks, and then pin him in the match over. Well, so, like, just, just so you know, this is, uh, this is the first time that has ever happened in a pure match, and I am not accepting of that. Like, that's insane. <laughs> but, like, in a pure wrestling title match, they're like, oh yeah, also, you're allowed to use chairs. <laughs> like, like, it's the same thing as, it's the same thing as grabbing the ropes. Like, that, that, that's what those things, those, those are the two equivalents. Yeah, that blew my mind when he hit him with the chair, and he's like, well, you lost a rope break. I was like, what? Okay. Um, oh yeah. So after that, after my my many question marks, I put on my notes. Um, it, yeah. So uh, yeah, I made that comment. Okay, and then they redo the Larry off the rope spot, but this time uh, Nigel uh, learns and he does the armbar, and uh, Joe Joe does gets the rope, so they they do that. Um, and then Nigel's like constantly putting on submissions to try to get Joe to grab the ropes, but instead Joe just kind of canters out of them. Um, I, I was thinking they really need, like, a scorecard on the bottom corner, like, keeping track of warnings. and. I think they have breaks. that now. I think, like, in current ROH, they do that. Good, good. That, progress. Um, so Nigel runs into the corner, and Joe does his catching slam. Um uh, yeah, but, uh, whoa, what did I write? Okay, but uh, Nigel counters it the first time, and then they do it again, and Nigel doesn't counter it, and that was confusing. 
Um, and then, um, yeah, Nigel does his headstand in the corner. Uh, Joe, Joe really souls the arm. Um, and, uh, yeah, when Nigel does the, the headstand, he gets kicked in the head. And then the Tower of London um, gets a three count because Joe puts his foot on the ropes, but he has no rope breaks on. Um, this, ma- this match didn't, didn't do it for me. So uh, <laughs> it, it's funny. How many how many pure matches have you seen r- recently? Like it's been a while, to be honest. Because I, I used to watch them back in the day, but it, it has been a while. Yeah, I mean, I know you've seen. A oh lot no, of I watched one uh, like two years ago because uh, Allison Danger and Becky Lynch had one on Shimmer, and it was really good. So. Matt and I, obviously, we've reviewed a lot of pure matches, and so people know our, our thoughts on the rules. I'm a little more against them than Matt. I think good matches can be had if you really work to them, but I think they're kind of convoluted, and there's more matches I've seen that are just either kind of there or where the rules actively kind of make it weird. But I would say this match, it was not particularly great. It was probably disappointing for a Joe Nigel match, but I would say this was a decent, solid good. It was like my favorite match of the show up to this point. I would say it, it succeeds more as storytelling That's fair. than, than as a match. So yeah. Like, like this match is all about starting the Nigel heel turn officially. That's been kind of in and out for a while now and, and, you know, giving him the title and giving a Joe a, a reason to lose the title. And so, yeah, the story is. Nigel is he's breaking the rules. You know, at first he keeps finding chances to hit Joe with a closed fist behind the ref's back. Joe gets pissed off, hits a punch in front of the ref, gets a warning. And then later on, you know, Nigel, you know, Joe eventually gets the advantage. Uh, he's going to go for the elbow suicida dive through the ropes. As you mentioned, Nigel grabs the chair, hits it. That costs him a rope break. But it's a, it's a good trade for Nigel, like, like you were saying. And that kind of turns the momentum of the match back. Then later, Joe loses a rope break with another punch. Now, the thing that I like all of this, I like the storytelling of, even if the, if the chair thing is kind of ridiculous, I like the storytelling of the, the way Nigel's going to beat Joe is it, he's going to, you know, break the rules every way he can. You know, that's going to become his character and he's going to be the master of the pure match because he knows how to break all the rules. Now, the thing I don't like about this match is all that, that I just talked about, those like two or three spots. That's all the rule breaking he does. Like they don't go farther enough in that direction for my liking. Like for example, when Joe hits his second punch in front of the ref and loses a rope break, he's not doing it because of any Nigel cheating. Nigel just like shove, like they're grappling on the mat. Nigel pushes him off with his legs, and then Joe just gets frustrated from something that's completely legal <clears throat> and throws an illegal punch to Nigel and loses a rope break. And it's like. You very easily could have had Nigel like sucker him in and cheat behind the rest back and get him again to throw an illegal punch. Instead, it just looks like Joe loses his cool and does something dumb. Or like the the end of the match is Joe loses all three rope breaks. Uh, Joe goes for a big running knee in the corner. Nigel avoids it, hits the Tower of London, and then just pins him right by the ropes. Joe gets his foot on the ropes as the ref counts three. But because he's used up all his rope breaks, the ropes are in play. It doesn't matter. And the ref counts three. And I just felt like even that ending, even though it plays into the idea that Joe has used up his rope breaks. So, so, and he lost some of those rope breaks because of, uh, Nigel chicanery. I just felt like it was almost too clean for the story they were telling. I felt like there should have been more cheating in this match because I like the instances of this match that did have 
Nigel cheating and Nigel, you know, playing the trickster that's outsmarting and getting under Joe's skin. And I just felt like there wasn't enough of that in the match, even though that was kind of the point of the match. But Yeah, and Joe looks like either Joe completely forgot what type of match he is or he's in or he's like forgot he lost his rope breaks or like, uh, like, I don't get it. Why would like, I understand like he, he didn't try to kick out. He, he, but he put the effort of putting his foot on the rope. Yeah, it, it, it's just weird. Um, there's more I could say, but Matt, I, I, you haven't talked for a while. So how about we, uh, what do you think about it? Like, are because I could see this as a match where some people would be really disappointed and, you know, maybe some people more like me where it's like, you know, I enjoyed it enough. Yeah, honestly, I thought it was like because of the storytelling, I thought it was like quite good. Like, I, I think these two have really good chemistry. I thought Nigel did do a great job of like the baiting of Joe. The chair thing just bugged me so much more than it bugged you that like it took it down a lot for me. It's just like, I don't know, I'm going to sound like Jim Cornette here, but it's like. If you really want to have Nigel use the chair, I think that's totally fine in the story of the match, like, because he's cheating. But, like, it's lazy to just do it right in front of the referee, you know? Like, it's just, like, just, like, be a heel. Like, figure out a way to sneak it, you know? Like, he did that with the punches. Do it with the chair. And it makes it, – it, then it, it, it avoids the, the, you know, the problem of making the, a complete mockery of the pure title rules where you could just hit someone with a chair. And well, to me, it was the penalty, like, well, that's what I'm saying. You can just hit someone with a chair and get the same penalty that you get when like you should have lost the like, ropes because you're in a submission hold. Like that's ridiculous. <laughs> like you should have lost all his rope breaks or something. Yeah, or like, get this, or get fucking disqualified if you're going to get disqualified. But like losing one rope break for like, one chair shot just seems insanely stupid. Rules like well, they'd like, have to. I would hope. Like you guys are watching forward, so I, I hope this happens. Uh, that there is a new rule, like a Nigel rule that's added to the pure rules about chair shots. Like they have to add a new rule to the I don't, th- the I don't think that happens. If I, if I recall correctly, <laughs> I don't recall that ever happening. But it's like Trevor and I have accepted, you know, begrudgingly, at least in my case, that ROH, despite being the wrestling promotion, somehow is almost like ECW in that there are basically no disqualifications and you could hit people with chairs <laughs> and low blows and stuff. But like in the fucking pure title, matches like that's the one that's like supposed to be the purest of the pure and you're still allowed to do that like that's so annoying to me and it just feels lazy i I don't know like it just it just feels lazy but like other than that i think that they they did a really good job nigel definitely did some good character work you know joe I, i like that joe is mixing up his pure title matches like he's definitely working the pure matches very differently then he worked his world title matches, which were much more like balls to the wall. This is much more like everything is, has a different story and everybody's trying to figure out a way to use the rules against Joe. And like Nigel eventually figures it out. Like I think, I think the story ultimately, you know, even though they say, you know, Joe elevated the pure title, which is part of the storyline, it's like the pure title rules do not behoove Samoa Joe. Like he does not work as well within them as he does without them. And Nigel, I think, his story, his gimmick is going to be like he works really well within those rules. And Nigel holds the title for a year after this. And, you know, I think the most of the best pure title matches are Nigel's. Um, we'll see if that holds that holds to be true. I don't think it happens right away, but I think he develops into it. And, you know, I like that. Um, so I thought this was a good match. But I will say this because this kind of brings me to the point I was going to say earlier. They – 
they really don't go – they don't – like these two guys did not decide. They're two great wrestlers, right? They did not decide, okay, let's go out there and have a great match. Like they very clearly were not like let's have a great match. You know, they, they, they wanted to have a really interesting storytelling match and get over the story and entertain people, right? But they weren't like have a great match. And it's just interesting to me because – I think ROH is sort of remembered the way like people think of PWG over the past 10 yeah. years. Just like everybody goes out there and has these, you know, they, they all try to steal the show. And ROH, especially in 2005, because I actually think in like 03 and 04, it was less like this. But in 05, they really, really, really don't do that. On this show, would you say like there was only one match where they even tried to have a great match? Would you agree with that, Trevor? Um. I would say the top two, they were both trying. We'll, we'll talk about how successful they were. But I, I think everyone else was either just trying to be good enough or, in, like, yeah, in a match like this, I would say it. The, the point of the match wasn't to be a great match. It was to serve the two goals of Joe needs a way to lose this title without losing steam, and we need to firmly, like, establish Nigel once and for all as a heel. Right. And, and, and having a great match was, at best, the third most pressing, like, focus. Right. And like, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to get at, because I do think like in 06 and 07, like, the, you do see more of the effort up and down the card to, to like steal the show. And I think in parts of 03 and 04, you saw that too. Not every match, but like more of them. 05, I feel like we've seen a lot of pretty dreary undercards. And I, I want to ask you, Trevor, because you've watched all the shows with me. And, you know, Stephen, if you have a thoughts on this, you know, definitely be happy to hear from you too. Do you think they went too far in this direction of like, all right, let's make sure that we don't overshadow the big matches because, like, I just feel like there's been a lot of matches that we could say, like, this over this, uh, these past few months of, of the shows that we've watched. Like, hmm, you know, they could have done much more <laughs> with that, like, than they did. And, like, obviously, I don't want the expectation to be that every wrestler has to go out there and kill themselves, you know, for, uh, you know, a match of the year, but, like, you know, maybe a little bit more of, you know, maybe at least, you know, pick a couple more matches to actually try to like really be memorable i just think there's been so many dull undercard matches in recent recent shows that it's like hmm, maybe you should try to spark things a little bit more i don't know do, do you see what i'm saying trevor no i i completely agree i, I uh it, it's funny like because i don't think it always was like this no, i think it, it wasn't was, i it, think this is like a this is like a mid 2005 issue <laughs> I think it's an overcorrection in part because, like I mentioned earlier, how guys – I think some of the guys on the top did not appreciate having to follow, like, these crazy 100-guy scramble matches where you saw a ton of insane stuff. And I think because of that, probably, if I had to venture a guess, they've now kind of, at, during this period, overcorrected. And, you know, we also are coming from a period in, like, two, late 2004 where they had a bunch of great matches where you could have one great match and an average undercard and it would be a great show – but I also feel like we're seeing less of those truly amazing show-stealing matches. And so then the undercard stands out more. Like if everyone's holding back because the main event, the presumption is that's going to be just a, a fantastic match of the year level match. And it's not quite on that level. All of a sudden the undercard that that strategy doesn't look as good. You, you know what I mean? Like holding yeah. back, you're holding back because the assumption is it's all going to be made worth it in those final couple matches. And right, on a show yeah, like I this, Oh, yeah, go on. No, I, was say, I mean, I do think it's true. Like, you can have a situation where you have too much too early and you burn out the crowd with too much amazing stuff. I mean, I think we've seen that even a little bit with AEW in current times. But there also have been plenty of wrestling shows in history where you're like, oh, those are a lot of great matches, and 
we got excited for all of them. Like, it's not a guarantee that you having a great match is going to kill a match that comes later. Well, I, I also think, that, I guess my my last thought on this, and again, Steve, if you have any thoughts, free, feel free to chime in. Or, But uh, I think the other thing that kind of sometimes people assume, which I don't agree with, is people sometimes almost act like there's two ways, which is either like you mail it in or you're working 110% like it's a WrestleMania main event and doing every spot you know, and those are the only two ways to do wrestling. And it's like there's a middle ground. Like I think there's an art to wrestling an undercard match where you're not burning out the crowd and not doing every single thing you do, but you're also really entertaining the crowd and not, not making them feel like they're missing out. Like, I feel like Colt Cabana is a guy who is good at that sometimes, where, like, he'll give you a match with some comedy, he'll kind of build to something entertaining, and, it, you know, if, he, if, if it's a main event match, as we'll see you later, he'll try and he'll do more, but he has a way of working a 10-minute match on the undercard where it's entertaining, but if I was a wrestler having to follow it, I would not feel like, oh shit, what do I do now? And I feel like there there are some wrestlers where it's like, if you tell them that they can't do everything, they're kind of at a loss, I feel like. I feel like there's an art to a wrestler that's able to go, can I get you to work at an 8 or a 7 out of 10? I feel like some wrestlers that really are, like I either wrestle at a 1, where I'm just like, you can see me rolling my eyes, or I'm working at a 10, and I can't do the middle. Yeah, and I like I I remember like going to like the the Mars Town show that we reviewed last week and the Philly show we reviewed, you know, uh, you know, a few shows ago, and just being pretty disappointed. And now I realize why. And it's just like ROH was selling itself as like this great wrestling company, and then you go and it's like, yeah, I mean, the, they do wrestling, you know, more than WWE does, but it's like. I don't know. It was like you you ended up seeing a bunch of house show matches and then like a, a couple of matches later that they put in, you know, they, they try to like do a little bit more. But like and it's and again, like I don't want to like downplay because like they're all like really hardworking wrestlers. But like clearly the matches that they were putting out, not, you know, you know, by, you know, by booking decision was just like we are going to make these a little bit tamer and less exciting than they could be. And I don't know. It just felt like this in this particular era of ROH. They're just more disappointing matches than usual. Yeah. I, so, yeah, my thoughts are, um, so if you're going to have a show that's full with great matches, if it's all the same type of match, it burns the crowd out. It's exhausting. So if you're going to have a show that's all great matches and everyone's trying to steal the show, like, you got to have different styles and different types of matches. And I think... Um, like looking at this card and Ring of Honor's roster, I think a lot of the people kind of work the same. So if you're going to have yeah. everyone go out there and try to steal the show, like uh, people are just going to be tired um, and nothing's going to super stand out too. Uh, Cause like if every, every match is great and it's the same, then like what's really great, it's hard to tell. Um, so but, I, but, I but, you, but you see what I mean? Like it's, it's not like they yeah. could, they could do more than just that without trying to have a super great match. You know, you they feel like just do a different type of matches. Yeah, like they're like do a Cole Cabana comedy match, do yeah. a, um, a, like a brawl, do um, you know a high flying match, do like a, a technical match. Like you yeah. can have a bunch of different types of matches. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think part of the problem with Ring of Honor's roster at this time is everyone like, and part of the problem with wrestling um, as the internet prevailed and everyone could see everything. Is it all kind of came homogenized and kind of the same so it's a little bit more difficult to have a lot of variety um so that's kind of the problem there so i think then you have to go down to booking uh, and i think that's something shimmer really did well 
especially during this period and, and a little beyond this, is that the undercard um, was mostly short matches to get character stuff over, get storylines over, uh, and then the big matches were saved for the end, uh, and it was all awesome, and it made the shows really easy to watch, and the shows are awesome. Um, so there, there's multiple ways to do it, but um, I, I think Ring of Honor's method of um, only the top couple matches can be great, and everyone else has to um, not put on a great match, but also get the time and work the same style as the main events doesn't like that doesn't really work. Clearly. Yeah, and, and I do think that it like it was better before this, and I do think it improves again. But it's just something I've been noticing. And again, like I'm I'm not advocating every match go out there and like you know go crazy and like everything. But I'm just I'm more just saying like there's there's very very clear holding back in some of these matches, and it shouldn't be so obvious. Yeah, and, and I will I will say too, um, you know, like like you just said, Matt. So you basically said half my point. But I was just going to say, Ring of Honor, you know, will not always be like this in the future. And also, not just like sometimes there'll be less holding back, but also there'll be sometimes I think there'll be shows we'll probably see where there is some holding back, but it will work, and guys will find that middle ground more, and it'll work as more of a whole show. It is interesting because I do feel like it is a way wrestling has changed, and I do. I, I like when a show is well done where it is has that lots of variety and not everything is has to be like I feel like there was a conversation wrestling was having with itself in a few years after this and Ring of Honor was one side and PWG was another side and PWG won because Ring of Honor at its best was there was times where it did have some variety and it was about kind of booking with the entire card in, in mind and PWG in its kind of when it really r- rose up in like the post gay ring of honor era was and more to a, built and to a lesser extent NXT takeovers, right? Yeah. Was, was built more on the idea of seven matches. We're telling everyone do whatever you want, steal the show, very little oversight, very little thought about the cards, the whole, just all killer often, you know, similar stuff. And I feel like PWG won in the sense of that's the direction wrestling went in. It, it was more uh, I, more companies I don't want to blame PWG because like I think YouTube and the internet I think made that what it is. Incentive. Yeah, do you, do you think in the sense of just that because just people the, can the now way you have access to everything. Yeah, and um, and the fact that like you can watch just the good matches now, so yeah, or like the most exciting matches, so now that's all you want to see. Yeah, it, it's not so much that not all you want to see, but definitely there is people who have that um, cherry picking mindset um, where I, you know, you wait until you people review the shows, you see which matches are good and you watch those um, and you don't watch them all at once and you don't watch the show as a whole. So it doesn't really matter. And um, I think that is more just where we are technology, technology wise. Uh, it kind of bred that and, um, you know, there, there's obviously been examples where it made the where people made the TV must watch each week um, and like watch the whole show. But I, I think it's definitely a lot easier for promoters to just, you know, book a bunch of great wrestlers and say, oh, you just have the best match you can. And yeah. we'll put out the matches individually, <laughs> you know, like you, you'll see whenever people upload shows um, like even Startup World, uh, they they upload each match individually first, and then they put the whole file of the whole show up later um, so that people can pick and choose. And I, I think it's just um, in, in, in this way, uh, you 
you really have to put a lot of effort in to make it so that people watch a whole show. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot easier asked to ask someone, "Hey, could you watch a twenty minute ma- minute match?" than could you watch a three hour show? Like, if you're getting someone to try something, it's way easier to ask that. It's almost analogous to like, you know, people don't have to listen to albums anymore because yeah. you know, they just it's just much more single oriented. So like, it's much more, um, I guess, um, specialized. The people, the the music listeners that really go out of their way to listen to like full albums like you're 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 going for a very specialized audience with there because almost everybody in the world just hears individual songs now if they want to own the song they just you know they play it on youtube or spotify or apple music or whatever it is and that's it and, and it's funny because when we were going back to oh, this show had so many guys where it was their last ring of honor show and they never really clicked with ring of honor even though they went on to click elsewhere or even eventually in ring of honor like the the uh go nuts atmosphere sometimes on every match sometimes it's not the best thing for a show but often it is the best thing for a wrestler trying to get a job because like watching those kevin yeah. steen shoot interviews he talked about like czw he was famous for him and generico worked a czw match i forget it was a tag or a four-way it was like a famous match where he said it was a four-way yeah yeah we we just did every spot we know knew like there was no psychology or anything he says a lot of people in wrestling gave a shit for that but he goes that match like he says i wouldn't have the career i have now i'm convinced if not that like that match broke him through in the u.s or he was saying like Around this time, you know, that they're in Ring of Honor, they're breaking into PWG, and, like, the first match they ever had was him versus Generico, and he said in PWG, they just told him, like, go out there, try and steal the show. And compared to Ring of Honor, you know, where they're telling him, third match on the top, you know, you got ten minutes, you know, try and get over, but don't steal the show, don't do too much and burn out the crowd, and we can see where that gets Steven Generico on this Ring of Honor, and it gets them nothing they 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 lose their uh, they don't get a full-time job where that opposite mentality in czw and pwg they instantly get over instantly are become regulars like for them that mindset was absolutely what they needed and i bet if they went out there on a ring of honor show and didn't listen to gabe and stole the show um they may not go back to ring of honor but they would have got bookings everywhere else (laughs) So. Yeah, well, well, even going back, like, Steen always says, like, the difference when he, when they came back to Ring of Honor, when when he, when he came back, their first match together again was that Steen and Generico versus the Briscoes, and, and Gabe, he said, this time, he says Gabe was completely different. He said, Gabe just told them, you got 20 minutes, try and steal the show. And they did, and then they were regulars from that moment on. So they did get that chance later on. You know, we'll, we'll see eventually, they will absolutely get that shot. But, um... I'm just looking at my notes about the match. We had a good discussion. I almost forgot we were doing a show about a different show. Uh, Nigel, I, I, an interesting note I thought was, it's always interesting when wrestlers like change their music or entrance before a big moment. And I think this is the show where Nigel changed his, his intro from, yes. uh, from, uh, roll on to fucking in the bushes by Oasis and talk about a heel move doing post nineties Oasis as your entrance music. Wait, hold on. Until you just said that just now, because I know that music very well, you know, because I went to all those ROH shows during that era. I don't think I had any idea that was an Oasis song. <laughs> That's like a 2000 or 2003 Oasis track, my friend. Wow. Um, you know that so, without looking it up? I, I, I had to look it up, actually. You know, I, I you know what? I, I wanted to seem like I was smart, Matt. You caught me. I looked it up and I was like, that's fucking Oasis. <laughs> and it was, I believe, off Standing on the Shoulders of Giants or something oh, like that. Boy. I remember that album, but I didn't listen to it. <laughs> Yeah, and I oh. think it was even a single for them, I, I believe. 
Was uh, that the album where he released a song that he said, everyone, this is the greatest song of all time. And then it came out and everyone was like, this song? I think it was like Layla or something. Was uh, <laughs> sure. I, I think that album, that whole album, I think is something when I was looking at Wikipedia just to find out about the song. It was one of those albums where they're like, people didn't like it, but they still are like, you know, that's one of the great albums we did. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, there, there are albums where they'll say it's shit and then there are albums be like, you know, people were wrong about that one. That was a good album. And, um, but also, you know, this match, we, we talked more about the story, but there was, like, Joe really beat the crap out of Nigel. There's something about when these two wrestle where maybe because Nigel's got a big, meaty body, like, the way, like, not Joe's offense, like, his kicks and stuff just thud against Nigel. It just hits different. You know, Nigel's mouth gets bloodied early. So there is some action in this match, too. It is just more, more of the focus is on the story and your, I think your mileage of what you feel get out of this match will depend on, you know, how much do you like the, uh, the story that they're telling, but, uh, moving on it's intermission and sugar Sean prices backstage with Chad Collier. Chad says no one can beat him. He might as well retire from wrestling. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Collier, it was an underrated goofy promo in ring of honor. Uh, Collier laughs about rendering a steal a bloody mess on the last show. And then at this point, homicide interrupts homicide says he has no beef with Collier. He, he just wants to know right now. He has to know where Colt Cabana is at. Uh, Sean says he's getting ready for his world title match. Almost like, like, what would you expect? Homicide. Uh, homicide says Colt disrespected him. He's tired of people disrespecting him. And he asked Sean to follow him with a camera later. He's going to give him a scoop. He's going to give him the hot news. So that will pay off at the end of the show. Well, what, I, this, what I would have really liked is if he said he was going to give him a scoop, and then at the end he gets, like, a, a little ice cream cup. I, I, I would like if he just had, like, pulled out a box of Raisin Bran. He's like, you know, fiber's important, Sean. It, it, was, it was the summer, though. So, you know, ice cream would have been nice. Yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And also, it was very echoey um, back there in that, yeah. that promo. It's very unusual for there to be an ROH promo during this era that was well-produced. <laughs> the rest yeah. of the promos, everyone, I'll just not make the comment, but it's very echoey. <laughs> Look, as long – I mean, I was going to say at least this show had things where we could uh, see what, where ever, what everyone was doing. But then I realized, no, we end the show with something where we can't see what's yeah. happening. So, so, so no, that, 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 that streak is not broken. Um but we'll get to that in due time. Uh, we now see a clip of the Ring Crew Express, Dunn and Marcos, defeating Ring of Honor students Matt Turner and Shane Hagedorn. This was the first match back from intermission. We just see the very end of it as a Gabe voiceover describes it as a special dark match that happened right after intermission. Gabe says normally this would just be for the live fans, but they're showing it for us for what quickly happens after the match which is Dunn and Marcos quickly get the win. We cut to Christopher Daniels coming out in street clothes. He gets on the mic and apologizes. He says he had some bad direct, got some bad directions to the venue. He just got here. He says, now I'm ready. I just need to get dressed in my gear. I can have my match with Shingo. Daniels is then informed by the crowd and everybody at ringside that, you know, Shingo already wrestled Curry Man. Daniels goes, I was booked with Chris Curry, Curry Man once in Japan, and he missed his flight, and missed my flight. He missed his flight. And then he's like, this is the second time something like this happened. So, you know, funny joke, haha. Uh, Shane Hagedorn's been in the ring the whole time. He's frustrated. He snatches the mic away from Daniels and says, you know, you're stealing focus away from my time to shine. He shoves Daniels multiple times. Uh, Daniels tries to be a good sport at first, but eventually he's pissed off. The crowd chants for Daniels to fuck him up. Daniels indeed does fuck up Shane Hagedorn when he hits him with a, 
Well, first he offers like he's going to give him a handshake. So we almost got two Daniels handshakes in one show. But instead he just suckers Hagedorn in, lays him out with the angel's wings. And that's the entire segment. So Actually, I get this is one of my one of, has one of my favorite moments on the entire night. OK, <laughs> well, which is Shane Hagedorn being like to Daniel, this is my time to shine just because like conceptually it's like his time to shine is when he's alone in the ring after he just lost the match <laughs> like that that was his time to shine like i just found that incredibly That's amusing. Good. yeah <laughs> it's funny. like i can always assume they did this just like I don't know why they did this thing other than it's kind of funny, but just for the idea that maybe maybe they were worried, like, just in case someone at that show didn't know that Christopher Daniels was Curry Man, like, we can at least say we still give you Christopher Daniels in some form. Like, he came out, he hit a move, <laughs> like, 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 I really think that might have been the logic of just in case there's one person in the back that's like, they promised me Christopher Daniels all I got was Curry Man. Like, now, now you can't say that. Like, they gave you something. But... I think you're uh, probably right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh... Whenever you're like, uh, I remember when this podcast started and you, you guys were like, I'm booking guests of people who are live at shows. And I'm like, I was at a live Ring of Honor show. I could be on this show one day. Um, and then I thought about like, what did I remember from this show? And like, the things I remember are all the Christopher Daniels like <laughs> segments and the, the, the main event. Um, I have, uh, I had something happen during that. Um, so those are like the two things I remember. I don't remember anything else from the show, like just by like looking up the name of the show. Um, so yeah, so the, the Daniel stuff, the, uh, the, the original angle where he, you know, said he, where they said he wasn't coming. And then when he came out again, I, I, I do remember all this. Uh, it was a lot of fun and, uh, Ring Crew Express are always, uh, they're, they're, they're a fun tag team. They probably should have yeah. been on the show instead of that opener. Um, probably would have been a little. They could have faced Puma and Ricky Reyes together, and it probably would have been a better match. Um, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're, they're another act where you know they're not. This is unlike a lot of people. They're this is not their last show, but they're definitely trailing off now. Yeah. Um, that brings us to Jimmy Rave and Spanky, escorted to the ring by Alex Shelley and Jay Chung, defeating Generation Next of Austin Aries and Roderick Strong in 1843, when Rave pinned Aries after Alex Shelley hit him with a chair, some chicanery, uh, the kind of thing that would cost you a rope break in a pure title match. But, uh, <laughs> but um, so it's 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 funny. Like um, I have a feeling this is going to be a match I like more than most people because. This was probably my favorite match on the show so far. It was not an amazing match. I thought it was a good, solid match. It's fine. We've said, we've criticized the show for having a lot of matches that feel like house show matches. I would say this feels like a house show match, but in the good way. Like, it felt loose. It didn't feel like they were trying to steal the show or anything, but it felt like they were just having a lot of fun. Like, in particular... The whole notion of this is the idea that this is Spanky's last show in Ring of Honor and that for one night only he's been hired to help out the, the embassy and be a team member. And he, Shelly and, uh, and, um, Rave are just, you know, Nana is not on this show. They, they, they sell on commentary as he has government business in, in Ghana. So Shelly is basically the manager and the three of them together are just having a lot of fun, particularly in the ring. Spanky and Rave, they're doing the stooging heels thing. They're, they have a spot where they run into each other early on at the start of the match. They're constantly like tagging to the other guy out of fear because they don't want to fight the other team. They are selling really huge, particularly for Roderick Strong. Like it's, it almost feels like an old style you know not quite wimpy like like it felt like a good mix actually because there was 
a lot of the offense, particularly down the stretch, was like kind of modern Ring of Honor offense. But a lot of the selling and character work from the heels was more of the like the stooging heels that are there to get the shit beat out of them and make the faces look great. And I felt like Spanky in particular, like this last run, he should have been a heel because he really found something. I feel like in these last couple of matches, what he was missing, just being kind of a bland straight ahead baby face on the rest of this run. And yeah, I, I thought as always, Aries and, and strong looked like killers, particularly because they were really getting, having guys that were really bumping and selling and strong for them. Um, you know, Spanky needing to get fanned off by Jay Chung was funny. I, I will, and I will say this. The last thing I will say is we, we talk on the show a lot about the treatment of women and how horrible it is, particularly this Jay Chung angle. We've been all over how awful it is. Occasionally something will happen in Ring of Honor that is awful that I will laugh against my will at. And the start of this, before this match starts, everyone is doing the little weird spanky dance in the embassy where he like kind of rotates his hands and like turns 90 degrees and, and, and all that. Everyone in the embassy is do, like, um, Rave and spanky are doing it and they just won't stop. And Jay Chung joins in and Shelly comes in and he shoves her down to the mat. So he can join in and do the spanky dance with them instead. And there's, you know, it is part of this horrible angle. It, it's misogynistic. It, it's aggression and violence against women. But there's something so hilarious about an evil guy going like, hey, lady, don't dance with my male friends. I want to dance with my male friends. And the, 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 the amount of time they danced, it was so fucking ridiculous. I laughed despite myself. I felt guilty about laughing. It was funny. I enjoyed this match. It is not a classic. It's not worth going out of your way to see. It was four talented guys having some fun. Matt, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, Stephen, I'm guessing, because you haven't watched all of these shows, you are not as desensitized to this Jade Chung stuff as <laughs> oh Trevor God. and I are. Yeah. <laughs> I, now, I, my first I, comment of this match is, so fuck this company. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, like yeah. now, now, like, I, you have to believe me on this. This is so far from the worst that we've seen <laughs> oh, so far from the Jade Chung stuff. Like, it's bad. Like, definitely it's bad. But, like, it's so far. Because, I mean, I guess one of the main reasons is Nana wasn't there. And when Nana's there, they, they play up the Jade Chung stuff so much more. Um, you know, here, like, you had that horrible thing at the beginning. But, like, most of the Jade Chung stuff during the match was off camera, you know? Um, so, like, you know, and like 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 I said, like, we are pretty like you know we're still upset about it like we talk about it all the time but like we're we are getting pretty unfortunately desensitized to it because it is on every show um now as far as the match um i agree with you trevor like my favorite part of the match was the first half where there was a lot of stooging i mean if you think about it the heels didn't get a lot of offense for like a long time. Yeah. I, I, like, like the, it was really all baby faces and it was just like a lot of stalling and, you know, R Roderick, you know, like would, would then eventually hit a chop and the heels would sell it. Like they were like, they needed to like leave the planet. Like that's how bad it hurt. Like, and that was great. Like, I really love that once, um, you know, once it got more fast paced and stuff, it became a little bit, more generic. I mean, Shelly was pr a pretty big non-factor early on, and then obviously he plays into the, the finish. But, um, you know, this is Gabe's one appearance on commentary because he pops in just to say that the treatment of Jade Chung is disgusting and he hopes Nana's not here because there's an uprising in Ghana. That's what he hopes. <laughs> um, 
but um but yeah you know as eventually it just it turns into more of a, a typical match with you know reversing moves spanky goes for the slight spread aries blocks it with the snake eye strong hits the kick rave breaks that up you know uh air strong breaks up the pin after the rave clash you know eventually um spanky crotches aries and then rave grabs him and then does the rave clash and then Strong breaks that up with the loud kick. You know, Strong was actually pretty on fire here. Yeah. Like, he was one of the best performers on the whole show, I thought. And Spanky was too, honestly. Um, eventually, um, you know, you get that chair, which Shelly is holding. Now, I was – I don't remember if – I think the ref was distracted when Shelly hit the ch- – with Aries with the chair, which is better than I can say about the Nigel thing. Um, they actually, like, tried to be heels here, like – uh, you know, with the, with their full, uh, effort in it. But yeah, I thought that this match was, uh, was pretty good. And I thought the first half was like really fun. Um, but yes, the, the J Chunk stuff continues to be insanely horrible. Steven, what'd you think about the match? And also, I apologize for us inflicting any of this angle on you at all, but I will say. Hey, you chose the show, man. Yeah, but I also will say. This is going, this is probably one of the better ones you could have seen because probably, most other shows on this recent stretch would be stuff like Prince Nana almost slapping her, raising his hand to her and talking about how like, I'm going to send you back to Vietnam. So like the, you, you got off light friend. I mean, and, and, you got and off I'll, light. And I'll add Foley, um, as the savior, um, laughing off a happy ending chant from the crowd yeah. as if that was appropriate. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so. Well, yeah, and there, there's more to come after this match. It's not all yeah. like <laughs> going on in this match. Um, we had the racism earlier, and now we get the misogyny, and we get the trifecta later. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you guys. The the, the match was really good uh, for most parts, like uh, especially early on with the chicken shit uh, heels running away, uh, and Roddy, you know, just destroying the chops and stuff. Um, uh, after. It was more focused around Austin Aries for like the last quarter. It wasn't as good, uh, but the finish was good with the chair, so that was good. Um, uh, you guys didn't mention that fucking Spanky is on a skateboard being pulled by the leash of oh, Jay Chung. Yeah, like, there's like a pallet on wheels, and Jay Chung's whole gimmick at this time is that she wears a leash because earlier, um, Stephen, in an earlier show, there used to be this thing where um, Nana would just push and shove her, and they eventually told – Ring of Honor told Nana he can't lay a finger on, on her anymore, so now he puts her on a dog leash. So, yeah, if for those who didn't want watch the show, the entrance is they stand on this little pallet with wheels and have – Jay Chung on the leash, like drag them to the ring. Yes, yeah. and I'm sure, and I'm sure you recall that prior to that, Stephen, uh, she was used as a footstool by Jimmy Ray for him to prank it into the. <laughs> yes, so that's all awesome. Um, the dancing was good. I just I don't know why Jay Chung joined in on dancing. Like, uh, if it was just the heels dancing and Jay Chang on the outside looking upset or sad, that would have been so much better because the dancing was funny. I just don't know why they have to push Jade around as well, and I don't know why she wanted to dance. Yeah, but um, there, there, there have been a few spots like this over the over the months where, like, she tries to, like, get in on the fun of the embassy, and they're like, you can't have fun with us. Yeah, yeah and you're yeah, like, you, why, yeah, why would you want to have fun with them? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah um, oh, yeah, and then Jimmy Bauer, when he comes in, um, he was like, I, I've been 
sitting in the crowd and drinking and enjoying the show. But this guy came out here to say, and then Dave Prezak's like, you're drinking on the job? Like, you have to do the main, <laughs> main event later. And, and they mentioned later, I think it was Lenny Leonard's, like, I hope he's done, like, I hope he sobers up before the main event. And I guess he didn't. Yeah. Because uh, he doesn't yeah. call it. Yeah, that, um, becomes, that becomes a running joke, too. Though. He He's no longer a commentator because of his drinking. <laughs> oh, wow. That's that's Add that to the list um, of shitty things this company's doing right now. Um, but, yeah, I, I do like the idea that Jimmy uh, Gabe has to come on to say how shitty his angle is that he's booking. Um, <laughs> that's some great meta uh, commentary right there. Um Oh yeah, and then the, the end with the heels cheating, that's fun. But yeah, and Spanky and Strong, like you guys said, were the real standouts. Uh, it was all a lot of fun. And I did like the the promo at the end was really bad with Aries, where he's like, do you want to escalate this war? Do you want anything goes? Well, that's exactly what you'll get. And then it like cut right there. Yeah, yeah I know. it's really <laughs> weird because like, I know that like on the next Buffalo show, they have a street fight with the embassy against Generation Next that goes all over the building. And I'm assuming that Aries issues that challenge there, but like, why didn't they have it on the, like, it's like, it, sometimes ROH feels WWE-esque in like the weird control that they like want to exert over different things. Like, it seems just logical that they would leave in that promo, but it's like, there was, must be some reason where they're like, oh, no, we don't want to show it here. Like, I, I don't know. It's weird. I, I will say Trevor, who has notes from the Observer about why this promo was cut. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I know that they also like this was obviously the, the, I guess maybe because the ticket sales weren't good. They were really pushing hard on the show, the matches you would see on the next show. So for those who haven't seen the show after the match, Aries gets on the mic. He says that the NBC want to escalate this war, you know, by using the chair and stuff. If they want outside interference, chair shots, anything goes. That's exactly what they're going to get. And you know what? I actually liked at least. Like, this match otherwise would have been completely kind of meaningless. It's just another match in their feud. I like the idea that it actually gives them a storyline reason to go, okay, because this match happened, the next time these guys face off, it's going to be, like, crazy no DQ. And I believe, like, if this promo continued on live, like, they really officially announced that match is going to happen. Right. They also announced it was going to be a Nigel-Joe rematch. on. The, like, they, they were telling you, basically, at this show, if you come back to Buffalo in a month and a half, here's what you're going to see. But, but, but the question is, why do they need to cut that from the DVD? I think that that's the question. Like, what, I, I, what, what, what's the harm in just showing that to us? Like, it may it would get us, it would get the home viewer excited too. I, well, not, clearly there was a time issue because they were cutting like after every match, like the second it ended. But it, did, believe, not, but it, but it did not go up to the three hour mark, which some shows do. This was more like two hours and like fifty seven or fifty eight minutes, right? Yeah. So like they did, they did have a couple minutes to spare. They could have included that at least. Huh. There's a chance we're thinking more about the editing than they thought right now. So, um, but either way, we're now going to go to the uh, semi-main event, which I think for a lot of people was the draw of the show. Actually, it was Shima defeating AJ Styles via pinfall in 16 minutes, 57 seconds with some kind of cradle. And this match almost didn't happen because going to the Observer, uh, Dave wrote at the time. At, this was right before the show. At press time, Ring of Honor was up front and saying Shel Alex Shelley and AJ Styles, due to their injuries, are questionable. Styles did work August 21st in Charlotte for an indie show, but mostly sold his knee and was said to not be in good enough shape to work in a Ring of Honor caliber match. He's expected to work, but not 100% this weekend. Shelley is more questionable. So obviously for us, you know, if you we just call the last match, Shelley was not good enough to uh, work a match. He was just a manager. AJ does work, so that's interesting to know. Whatever people think about this match going forward, I, I have no idea what our thoughts are going to be. Well, I know my thoughts, but um, like 
you know, AJ worked this basically being questionable. But I also thought was funny, which was AJ would do this a few times where he would get injured. You know, I think this was an injury he suffered in TNA and he would, he would, um, and I think this was probably good intentions by him. He would say like, you know, I'm too injured to work Ring of Honor because they require a certain level, but then he'd, he'd work other lower indies. And I always thought, how would you feel if you were like running one of those lower indies where like AJ was publicly saying, you know, I can't work Ring of Honor because, you know, you need a really good performance there. And then he works your show like the night before something. You're like, oh, thanks, AJ. I guess you can just slum it here. Like, I, I get what he's saying, but that was something. In fact, I think it'll come up. It'll be a bit of a controversy in a few shows from now. But I hope he charges Ring of Honor more than he charges the other promotions. I, I, I'm not sure. But uh, uh, Matt, this was, you know, again, this was, I, I think, the match that probably sold the DVDs. If whatever DVDs this show sold, what would you think about the match? Well, the match was definitely not the most memorable thing <laughs> about this segment. Um, so, um, AJ Styles... Um, <laughs> He, uh, I, I want, I don't want to bury the lead here, so this is the lead to me. Um, AJ Styles had a reputation during this era of saying the uh, homophobic F slur a lot. Like, he is definitely not the only wrestler that would deploy this word. You, um, you could make a five to ten minute, uh, probably at least super cut of the amount of times he's used the F slap the word slur in promos in matches just on camera freely knowing he's being filmed you could make a long compilation video. Yeah, so no, no, isolated he, thing yeah you know he, he's not the only wrestler who did it like i even remember and we'll, we'll get to it i remember even like a brian danielson uses it in 2006 like and we'll, we'll get to that but like it was you know the times were bad but aj used it a freaking lot like you said like just like a lot a lot a lot to the point where there's a famous moment on um Wrestling Observer Live during this era where Bix <laughs> yeah. calls and meets him and he's like, you know, how do you feel about your popularity among the gay community? And AJ's like, the gay community? I mean, I think everyone <laughs> yeah. probably is aware of well, that. Wasn't he very, uh, like, fundamental religious, too? Yeah, so yeah, he was, like, obviously, like, a really, like, religious Christian. And I know, Trevor, you pointed this out to me, like, to the point where, like, he didn't, he didn't curse, right? Like, that was his whole thing. Like The, the he, famous he, anecdote was, uh, some other wrestler told us that they w- when they went with AJ to see the movie Jackass the movie, um, AJ, when he bought his ticket, said, one for Jack A, because he, he couldn't bring himself to say the word ass, yet this word, and so, I guess... This word freely comes out of his mouth. Yeah, I, I was gonna... Uh, Twice in this match! Twice in this match! Like, that was... The, yeah, I was going to say that was the point I was making to Matt in private, which you're probably about to bring up. But I was just going to say, um, like, I think that makes it worse in the sense that, look, um, saying slurs obviously is bad. I, in fact, I my Patreon right now, I wrote a, yesterday or two days ago. It's www.patreon.com. Mecca, Mecca. There's it's the second post most recent. It's like something part one. But uh, it's basically a weird some weird events happened this week and I wrote about racism and you know, I wrote a lot about the uh, things similar to this. In fact, about how, like, look, when I was a teenager, when I was like 15, 16, I used that slur or just calling things gay as if like, Oh, that was boring or something. And I did not have an inch of malice in my heart, but to this day I feel awful about that because I was just stu- too stupid to realize the way it hurt, and I go into the article yeah, more. And, about, and, I, and I, by the way, I have something to say about that, but you, but about that concept, but you can, you can continue. But, but I go into the article about why that's hurtful and why it's not always wild. Some people like to say it's just words, how it's not. But my point is this: 
I think a lot of people that throw around those slurs like that, it's still not good, but they don't have malice in their hearts. They, and in fact, a lot of those people, they don't think they're saying something bad. Like they'll say, oh, you know, I don't mean it. Like people know I don't mean it that way. I mean it this way. I think that the difference with AJ is the fact that he would, when he bought a ticket to Jackass, like, like there are a lot of people that will say a slur and they'll go, you know what? I don't believe any word is bad. I believe there are no bad words. And I don't agree with that reasoning, but I at least see that as a separate train of thought. You know, AJ is a guy who thinks that there are words, even as words as not as innocuous as ass. They're so bad. You can't say them out loud, but he loves saying this word. Like to me, that in a way makes it worse because he's not a, a all words are good guy. He, he thinks there are bad words and he thinks this word isn't one of them, which to me makes it just even worse. Yeah. So, so let me like, so, so my, my, my point, like I, so, so he says it once where, um, when like he has, um, Sima Shima in an arm bar and a fan goes shut up AJ and he just yells really loud shut up that word and the crowd pops like crazy they love it they they chant it for, they, you know they chant for him more than they do for any other thing in the match then a little bit later on he's just selling his leg and like he's, he's like he's like trying to like stand up on his leg and get his leg back to life and he just says the word apropos of nothing like i don't know yeah. if he's calling his leg that word or he's calling his injury that word <laughs> he called like, his knee a racial slur <laughs> Like, yeah, yeah. Oh, minority. Yeah, homophobic slur. But yeah. like, um, I yeah. So, but first of all, like Trevor, and I know what you mean about like you use that word as a kid, and like you know you didn't have malice. But I'm gonna say, even when people use that word and they don't think they're being homophobic and they don't feel like they're being homophobic, they are. Like I remember, um, and I'm you know, and I'm not trying to call you out. Like you know, I was not an angel about this either. You know, when I was in certain ages, like maybe like. You know, I would call things gay when I was like in middle school, you know, but like it was homophobic, even though I wouldn't like admit to myself it was because like we all know the context of those words. You know, it's not like you don't know that the word that's associated with, you know, you don't know, you know, like I remember Eminem when he would be called out for this back in like around like the turn of the century. And he'd be like, no, I don't mean it about gay people. You know, it's just it's you're not being manly. You're not a man. I'm like, oh, <laughs> like, good. Okay, I think that's that's not homophobic. You know what I mean? Like it like, of course it is like people know the context. They just it's just sort of like a self-denial sort of thing. Um, and. Like, I was the annoying kid when people would like, like, oh, that book is gay, and I'd be like, so that book is fucking another book of the same gender? Like, yeah, what, right. what do you mean? <laughs> like, I was that annoying kid. <laughs> well, and I'll just say this, like, because I think times, like, you know, like 2005 is, you know, it's kind of a dark time. Like, if, looking back, like we didn't feel like it as much at the time, like, but it really was. But like, even okay, so Trevor and I, the very first segment we ever reviewed on this podcast was. The Christopher Street Connection segment, like, if you've ever listened to this podcast, you probably know, like, it's a pretty infamous segment, and, like, we tore it apart. Like, we were very clear on how much, how disgusted we were by the homophobia of that segment. It's well known, like, if any, like, fans of this podcast remember that, it was, like, a very notable debut for us. We hated that segment. We thought it was the most homophobic thing we've ever seen in wrestling, which is saying a lot. We shredded it. It's you. There's no way to listen to that segment and not know for sure that we were disgusted by it. But in trying to accurately recap that segment, we used that word. We said it out loud a few times. Yeah. We 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 recapped. You know, it was like we were quoting. You know, we weren't using it like in that way. We were quoting. That's 2017. 
four and a half years later, I would not even use that word to recap. Like, I, I just, like, that's how much things have changed. Like, I just wouldn't. I just don't think that word needs to be voiced. And it's like, you know, I'm not, like, concerned. Like, I, I again, you listen to that segment. Go ahead. Like, very clear what we thought. But, like, so it's just so you, so you do see how, like, hopefully AJ has gotten over this homophobia. Because, like, I'm will, you know, like, because, like, again, like, you listen back and it's like, there are things that I would said that I wouldn't say now. Not because yeah, my, I wouldn't okay. put money on it. Not because I, my, I, not because my beliefs have changed, but because I don't think that that's worth that word is worth saying, even to recap someone else saying it. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Uh, I will. One thing I, I want to say is, and I don't mean to be like kumbaya or anything like that, but I do say there when I do see moments like this that are so bad, it does make me feel like there is some small progress in God. In, in today's world, we need like levels of progress anywhere we can find them, and like. Because I think, like like Matt said, when AJ says that, it's a it's it's one of the it's one of the crowd's favorite things this entire show. And I think if any wrestler did that today, not only would the crowd not be into that, they probably would not be booked for that promotion again, unless it was like a really grimy, low level, shady type so, promotion. I'm a little bit more cynical than you. I think you're right about maybe the booking. I'm not as so sure that every crowd... We have legit sexual offenders who are yeah. getting booked nowadays, so I would not say that. Yeah, I, I don't think... Like, like, the crowds, like, I'm not sure that every crowd would, would, would be against it the way that we would hope. Like, I, and I think... I, I've been to wrestling crowds where... And, they, you know, they do seem more progressive than they did back then, but, like, there's still that element in the crowd of, like, misogyny and homophobia. Like, it's definitely still there. I mean, listen to some of the pops that Chris Jericho gets on his promos when he makes misogynistic comments or even some gay-baiting comments, honestly, like, in re- on recent – you know, like, he – you know, like, there, there's still wrestlers that do that stuff and they still get pops for it because it's still pro-wrestling. Well, look We're not at there. even just in the, the world, all the – like, as we speak – all of the big right-wing political people are shitting on Pete Buttigieg for taking parental leave. Yeah, but it's not just the right wing, you know. Like that's like like, yeah. like, like, like obviously, obviously they're going to be horrible, right? Like that's not even a question. But like, I think you still see it, like in like you know liberal circles that maybe are just not as aware, like of like and like they, they just they oh, like yeah. they think they think they're liberal, but they're actually like still beholden to these old attitudes you know what i mean oh yeah like uh if you follow me on twitter you know that i spend a lot of my time um arguing with turfs and (laughs) the amount of misogyny that they spew out while saying they're like a liberal feminist is unbelievable um so yeah totally like it's all there and um it, it fucking sucks. Like we we need to get over over this um, over this bigotry and, and it's BS. Yeah, but, I, it, it's, 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 I know you want to talk, Trevor. I'm sorry. Oh, no, like, no, no, go on. So it's it's really like obviously like just like just seeing this show in particular, as you pointed out, Stephen. Like it's so crazy to think of how bad things were in 2005. Like this show has you know racism, uh, misogyny. Um, homophobia like and it's all like completely accepted and roh was not the only and the world champion comes out with a confederate flag yeah and then the confederate flag comes at the end which we've seen a lot of also but like yeah like again like totally accepted in freaking the canadian border right like like that's like that's how 
fucked up wrestling was at the time. Like that was considered okay, even in that part of the country. And like ROH was not the only offender here. Like it's not like this was just our an ROH problem. This was the year that WWE had Muhammad Hassan, right? They, um, you know, a bunch of you know, I'm sure of the, like Matt Hardy's um, misogynistic comments and treatment of Lita. Um, you know, I know. I listen. I don't remember exactly what TNA was doing in 2005, but I <laughs> bet you they had some stuff that was offensive. 2005 TNA was pretty decent. I mean, uh, like, TNA um, was it wasn't until 2006 when Russo came in that it kind of went really bad. <laughs> TNA was the promotion, probably somewhere in that era though, where they had the Harris brothers. One of them came out, worked, made an entrance wearing an SS T-shirt. So I mean. <laughs> I was in 05, but yes, yeah, your point is taken. I, I, I mean, yeah. just to say, like, in some ways, as sad as this is, Ring of Honor was better than sometimes what wrestling, what was going on. It, Although, it, I, have say, I have to say, I don't know if Ring of Honor had as much compound, like, horribleness than this show did. Like, it had lots of horrible stuff throughout, but, like, this this show checked so many different boxes of horrible. But, in terms of, but, like, you know, those things. But But I just wanted to say, Matt, like, I agree it wouldn't be every show that this has improved on, but I will say, okay, if we just make a one-to-one comparison, you know, Ring of Honor was the number one indie in the U.S. at this point. They were the hot place for the ultra-smart, marky, you know, knowledgeable, nerdy, buys-the-tapes fan. Semi-main event, huge match. This got one of the biggest pops of the match and of the show. I think if you did the same thing today, if, if in the main event of the next PWG show someone said this, it would not get, it would not only would it not get one of the biggest pops of the show from the crowd in, in, in California, it would not get a good reaction at all. It would, Absolutely. PWG, it would not get a good reaction from the fans. I completely agree with you. But I there bet is there's some a, indies it would work in though. But, but I bet you there are times in PWG, I mean, I know there's promos in PWG where AJ said, uh, I bet you at the time he got pops there, you know, oh, but yeah. it, it has changed in that definitely, sense. Definitely things have changed for sure. Just not enough. That's all. Um, so, oh yeah, there was a match too, match, wasn't there? Match, anyway, yes, I'm sorry. I, no, okay. But I do think that was worth discussing, but like. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, we, we, sometimes people don't like when we talk about weighty issues, and to them, I will always say, and look, any criticism is welcome. We always give the information at the end of the show. I love reading everything, but I will say this. The, we have very, we got, we get far more praise and criticism on the show. We very rarely get criticism. I think the two of the three times we ever did was about getting in any way political. I will say this. Politics intercedes into any element of life. I get for, I get the idea of people wanting to escape from it. And, and usually I think the show is when it naturally comes up, we will talk about. It. And the thing I always say to people with that, that problem is if you don't like it, we're, we're, we will we will talk about it when we come up. It comes up like once every year or two. So if you didn't like this conversation, guess what? It probably won't come up again in in this level of a way till something crazy happens again in another year or two. Like Trevor, Trevor you are way too nice, man. Like I like no, I'm serious. Like I, on the very first segment that we did ever, the one I was just talking about about the Christopher Street connection, I said. If you do not like it when we talk about political issues and give our opinions on things like this, go fuck yourself. Don't listen. And to me, that's all you need to say. Like I said it right off the bat. That was a part of like like a mission statement. Like I'm going to talk about 
issues like this because they're relevant and because I care about them. And that's it. That's the show. Listen, yes, you're right. It doesn't come up that often, but you know, maybe it'll come up more often. Who knows? Depends on what happens. I, I'm yeah. sorry. Well, I, I don't well, have any sympathy for people that don't want to hear this stuff. You don't have to listen to our podcast. Well, absolutely. And I, I will never like, I don't want to imply, I will never consciously limit I'm, I, it, whenever it comes up, it comes up. It comes up every show. It comes up. If it does, if it comes up once a year, it comes up once a year. I, I just, I, I, yeah, I agree. I don't have any sympathy towards people that get pissed off, but I can understand. Like, if 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 people just want something that doesn't talk about those issues on one level, I can understand because everyone needs. I think you can't avoid those issues, but everyone needs some place where they can escape from that stuff. And I just want to be honest and say, like, look, if this is your first show or whatever. This is not some, if this is something that you just, you, maybe you agree with us on these issues and it just depresses you to think about it. And when you listen to a dumb pro wrestling podcast that wants to be like the three hours of your day, you don't have to think about this. Generally, we're pretty safe for that, but we will absolutely not shy away. And we, there are episodes where we've talked for, you know, 10, 20 minutes about heavy, heavy topics and we're not going to we will likely do that again you know when it comes up if you don't like hearing about that stuff blame professional wrestling for decades (laughs) of racism misogyny homophobia xenophobia and every other ism and phobia that you could think of so like don't blame us (laughs) that's wrestling man is there a lot Um, of pointillism in wrestling um yes cubism (laughs) yeah i guess not every ism I guess they're Dr. Cube, you know, the, the, he, there's that wrestler on the indies, you know, in a Kaiju Big Battle. So I guess anything he does is Cubism. But anyway, there Stop was it. a match, and beyond <laughs> the, the, the crowd-loving racial slurs, Matt, well, what was the match like? Um, so, okay. So I thought that it was slower paced than I would have guessed. That's why I was sort of like – um. Were they really trying to have a great match? Like, you know, I know you said they, they were. Um, I think they were trying to have a very good match, and I think they succeeded in having a good match. Like, the, the last few minutes I thought were very good. Like, as happens a lot in these ROH matches. They really pick up the pace. They do some big moves. You know, they, they, they hit their big spots. They reverse some big spots. Um, it's, it's weird because uh, uh, Shima wins over the crowd to the point where AJ actually gets booed at the end. When he goes for the Styles Clash, although they do not boo when he finally wins it, but they the crowd was clearly liking liking Shima there. Um, but you know, like the early part was definitely slow. Like it was they the I, I nothing so interesting. I did like that the announcers got in their um, got in their shots at Dragon Soldier B because because they were like, <laughs> oh, Shima's the biggest Japanese starter up here since Jushin Liger, and then uh, Lenny Leonard was like, what about Dragon Soldier B? And Prezak was like. Shima's the biggest Japanese star since <laughs> yeah. Thunder Liger, um, which I enjoyed. Um, you know, but the early part of the match is just like them doing, you know, a series of mat stuff and, you know, having their applause breaks. And then Shima starts working over the leg, which uh, AJ refers to as the F-slur. Um, both times that AJ says it, Prezak, like, laughs. Oh, and, I heard that and I was but, so sad. But no, but like, okay, so here's the thing, Stephen. Like, I, I, I get what you're thinking, but I think it was like really nervous, uncomfortable laughter because. Yeah, I think probably too. You're right. Because he couldn't call it out, you know, like he wasn't allowed to. So like, I'm sure he was just like, like, like laugh. I think he was like, what the fuck is this guy doing? Like, I think that was, I, I really do think that. Maybe I'm giving him too much credit, but that is what I think. Um, 
but I um like I think he was just like, well, this guy's such a shithead. I that I think. But anyway, as far as like running down the stretch, it does get more fast pace. Um, there's um, you know AJ hits the torture rack power bomb. Uh, Shima catches AJ on the top rope and hits him with a palm strike and a super kick while AJ is up top. Then AJ lands in like almost like a reverse tree of whoa and Shima <laughs> hits him with the corner to corner drop kick and the crowd goes nuts for that one. They loved his corner to corner drop kick. Um, and then she's lost some luster over time now that Shane McMahon does it. <laughs> yeah, well, Shane McMahon did Shane McMahon did it in, w- in WrestleMania a few years before this, actually. So or that's true. But yeah, yeah he, he started he's doing it as like a fifty-year-old, and yeah, you're like, yeah. well, okay, I guess that spot isn't that impressive anymore. <laughs> the WWE ring is bigger. Um, yeah, but, that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, but I couldn't do it, so hey. Um, but yeah, Shima hits the iconoclasm and goes for the frog splash. AJ gets his feet up, which I think is cool. Better than getting the knees up. I think getting the feet up is always looks cooler. Um, um, Shima hits a super kick. AJ hits the Pele kick, which was a good spot. And then um, um, there's a series of cradles and, uh, and AJ gets the win. Um, I enjoyed the final few minutes. I, I, I think everything was fine, but I, I, I didn't think that – it didn't really feel like they were doing the best they could here either. Not Again, not saying they had to do anything more. Like it was still good, but I, I just, just didn't feel to me like they were like, yeah, let's go out here and burn the house down, you know? Uh, Steven, uh, what do you think about the match? Obviously, we've talked a lot about the one spot in the match, but there are other spots in the match, I guess. First of all, I wrote down um, that SEMA won with a roll-up, and Cage Match says that as well. Am I wrong? Some kind of cradle. Did, 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 did I write that down wrong? Maybe I did. My fault. I wrote right. some kind of cradle in 1657. I, I think I just, I, just, I just misspoke, yeah. Okay. I just want to make sure because I wrote down finishes wrong in the past myself, <laughs> so I want to confirm. Um yeah, so um, it shows how much I love you two because uh, normally I would have turned off a match if I saw something like that. So uh, I would have turned off the show probably the first promo uh, with Homicide. So, um, yeah, so. Uh, we, we, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, what else? Oh, I really love Seema's, like, jumping um, uppercut in the corner, like when uh, AJ is on the top rope. I know it's a spot he does all the time, but that's like my favorite thing about Shima. Um, I love that spot. <laughs> I'm not a big Dragon Gate person, but I, I do love that spot a lot. Um, but what really struck me about this match, uh, and like you said, it was solid and good or whatever. Um, what really struck me is how similar the two are. Like they have the same same type of body they have the same kind of like quickness of like movement um, and the same kind of like mix of power and flying. Like these two are very similar, um, but uh, and, and Sema does seem a little bit crisper and stuff here in, in this one. But um, yeah, that's the thing that really struck me about this match was how how kind of similar these two are as workers. Um, yeah, that's about my comments. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought this, in terms of action, this was the best match on the show. Uh, you know, if I had to give it a star rating, I don't know, three and a half to maybe, or maybe even just three and a quarter, depends on what mood I was in and if I'm focusing on a slur or not. Well, no, a slur has nothing to do with match quality, but like, it, it's good. 
it's not again it's another match where if you look at this on the uh the match listing on the back of the dvd and go holy shit i can't wait to see this dream match like it's not on that level i also think they work the kind of match that ages the worst which is there's not much of a story to this. It's mostly two athletic, talented workers trading signature moves and doing some athletic stuff. And it's good, but the bar for pace and how crazy moves get and, and all that stuff, you know, gets raised so frequently. And this match was mostly just built on that. Like, there's a few moments in this match where they actually try and work a body part, like the shoulder of AJ, I think, and and the leg of AJ and Shima's back. But each time they'll work on it for like two or three moves and they'll be like, yeah, we're not doing that anymore. And, but, you know, the match is good for what it is. And I, and I also have to consider that AJ, you know, was working with a, a knee injury, which is... No fun, no bueno. Um, well, his 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 knee was uh, um, homosexual on it, so that <laughs> yeah. was the problem. He want he wanted to get it removed. That that obviously must have meant. But uh, conversion therapy on it. <laughs> wanted to turn to an elbow, but um, yeah, and Matt, I I thought I agree. I thought the the craziest thing in the match was from the start. Like Shima was really over, and from the start of the match, it was like. You could tell the fans were really into both guys. And then it felt like right after that Van Daminator, or Van Terminator, I guess is that, when it goes corner-to-corner dropkick, by that point on, it felt like the crowd was like, fuck AJ, like, Shima's our guy now. To the point where, like, as you said, when AJ's going for the South Clash, they fucking boo him. And it was like, wow. Like, slurs, not not good enough to get you to boo him. The other guy does cool cross-ring dropkick. Now, now, now it's time to change allegiances. But you know what? If AJ had just said a slur one more time, they would have he would have gotten them back on his side. <laughs> I thought they were booing him because he was stealing Jimmy Rave's move. Yeah, yeah, stealing the Rave Clash. Also, this match had maybe the first ever drop down that I've ever seen in a wrestling match that I think worked as a shoot because at one point AJ drops down when Shima's running the ropes. Shima tries to jump over AJ, but I guess AJ dropped down too quick too late and shima actually kind of clips aj as he hops over him and like stumbles into the ropes and luckily they save it because aj immediately like jumps to his feet and runs over and drop kicks shima as he's kind of like at the rope so it saves it i just wrote my notes it's like the first ever shoot drop down where that actually seemed to work but uh yeah so that's the match good but you've seen better matches of that style a lot of them in the last 16 years, but some other stuff to go on about this match. First off, the Observer wrote, Shima pinned AJ Styles in the match that stole the show and with them going back and forth and tearing down the house. The highlight was Shima doing a Van Terminator-like dropkick across the ring, which was the spot of the show. There was fear because the crowd was so hot for this match, it would hurt the James Gibson versus Colt Cabana title match that followed. However, Gibson and Cabana had a near 30-minute title match with Gibson winning, and they had a strong match as well. We'll be the judge of that in a few minutes. But, uh, yeah, I, I will say, again, going to how I think this is the kind of match that maybe ages the, the worst – this was a match where if I, when I looked at all the live reports, you know, a lot of people were like, I'm thank God I went to this show. This was worth the price of admission. This was fantastic. So you know, I, I feel like at the time this match probably played better than it does rewatching it all these years later. Fair enough. Um, this match was also 
a, a, obviously a big part of a, or this show of in, in starting a Dragon Gate, uh, Ring of Honor relationship that would last for years. And Gabe's relationship with Dragon Gate would last even longer with Dragon Gate USA. Cause as the observer would write, Dragon Gate officials were, who came with Shima and Takagi were, who were said to have been very impressed with how their guys were received. At this point, there are no plans for, for a specific return, but with Shima going over, clearly the idea is to bring them back. So yeah, um, that's happening. Then next up, we have a PW Insider live report. And Stephen, this is the thing I'm going to test your memory on because this is the incident. Boy. None of this makes DVD, but uh, this is kind of a. I took all the different things Andy Hill wrote on at different points of the show and kind of compiled them to one show long storyline, which I will read out here. Andy Hill first wrote during the four four way early in the show it was about this time that some idiot came up into the bleachers and started yelling all kinds of smart quote-unquote comments more on him later then during the joe nigel match andy writes the idiot i mentioned above was loudly crapping all over this match even going so far as to start whistling to show how bored he was. I thought this one guy in the bleachers was going to kill him. The crowd didn't know how to react to the finish. They wanted to cheer McGinnis for his work, but boo him for cheating Joe out of his title. The idiot I mentioned above was loudly crapping all over the match, even go so as far as to start whistling at one point to show how bored he was. Oh, oh I already said that, that. Just a repeat of that part. Anyway, then Andy, finally... During the, the, he wrote during his review of the style Shima match, he wrote this. Immediately after this match, Samoa Joe came out and grabbed the idiot from earlier by the neck and dragged him out of the building. Not sure how many people saw that, but a group of us in the bleachers popped big time. And in fact, someone apparently saw that because this actually made a little bit of news in the newsletters. Uh, the torch wrote, Samoa Joe threw a fan of a recent Ring of Honor show. He addressed it online in his live journal. He wrote, quote, for those who are wondering, yes, I did throw a fan out of the last Ring of Honor show. Not for chanting or for being a general attention-whoring jackass, but for an attempt to throw bullshit into the ring. I always say it is a wrestling show and you are there to say whatever you please. But the minute you want to start throwing unwanted stuff into my ring, then don't be surprised when you receive the attention you so desperately crave. So... This is one of, you know, I think multiple instances of Joe and other Ring of Honor wrestlers, like, basically doing the job of what you would hope would be security and throwing a fan out of the building. Um, Steven, do you remember any of this? Oh, yeah. I uh, I had to spend the night in jail. Um, oh, the penalty. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> unlike, unlike Trevor. Never, <laughs> yeah, never like spent Trevor. the night in jail, to my regret. But, um, but no, um, I don't remember any of that, so um, I wonder if I was in the other bleachers or if I was oblivious. Um, when did they, did they throw him out during this? Oh, after this, they match, said right? after this match, so it would be before, right before the main event, I guess, Joe. Okay. And it's funny because, you know, Joe said it was because someone throw stuff in the ring, you know, no live reports. Anyone threw stuff in the ring. They just say they, the few, a few people in this section saw Joe throw a guy out. And according to, you know, this Andy Hill, apparently is a fan who was basically being an asshole the entire night long, but not, no report of him throwing stuff in the ring, but maybe it was I don't think he did or did. Maybe it was one of the people that threw the toilet paper slash streamers at the embassy. <laughs> yeah. That was just using that as an excuse. <laughs> Look, no, no, no toilet paper, buddy. But um, that ends that. So we cut to Samoa Joe backstage, probably fresh off throwing a fan out of the building. And he uh, he says that <laughs> being a champion can't last forever. Joe says he's learned that twice now. People say you can't be unbeatable forever. Joe says he's learned that twice now. When things like this happen, people begin to talk. They say you're losing a step. You're getting slow. You're getting 
complacent. And Joe says that last word, complacent, nearly choking out with anger. It's just this great delivery from him. Joe says, when this happens, you can either continue to be slow, complacent, and a step behind, or you can get a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more intense. He says, an error of dominance can only last so long, but an error of viciousness can last forever. Then Joe says, the world will know that he is Samoa Joe. He is professional wrestling. And, you know, I thought we were big fans on through the years of the short Samoa Joe promo. I thought this was, even by those standards, a very, really great Joe promo. I just like even the way he framed, like, losing a second title in a year, the idea of, like, well, I can't be champ forever, but I can just kick ass forever, and that's what I'm going to do. Joe always, always delivers on these promos. This was great. I loved yeah. it. One of, the, one of the, maybe the highlight of the whole show. Up there. Definitely up there. And uh, that brings us to the main event. Uh, Ring of Honor world title match. James Gibson defeated Colt Cabana via submission in 28 minutes, 18 seconds, when he made him tap out to the guillotine choke. Uh, Steven, you're the guest. Main event time. What do you think? That, it's it's a long match to be sure. That could work either way. What did you think? Uh, so at the time, um, so I still do. Uh, I had really bad sleep apnea, but I didn't get um, a CPAP machine. Like um, like uh, they say at like fifteen times an hour you stop breathing you're supposed to get a CPAP machine Mm -hmm. um when I got my CPAP machine like years after this I stopped breathing 55 times an hour wow Uh, so it's very extreme um so I fell asleep during this match live to be honest um back in the day so um I guess I will say it was too long um (laughs) definitely there (laughs) but I used to fall asleep everywhere at the time so that's not really a a fair comparison um so I I was actually interested going back and watching this and um like because my only memory was I fell asleep and it was long um so what did I think this time is a great question and I gotta say I finished uh this match two minutes before we started recording the show and I don't think I can remember much, like anything about it. <laughs> well, you know so, what? In, in itself, that's a review. That, that's probably a very telling review, in a sense. I would, I would say. Yeah. So this, they like just they did. A, it was one of those matches where everything looked good. Um, everything they did, like everything looked good. There was a lot of stuff going on. There was a lot of good wrestling. Like there was even somewhat of a story with Gibson working over uh, Colt's neck. Uh, and that um, leading to the finish with um, uh, a guillotine choke. Um, but it, it just felt like a match where it, like it didn't have a thing. Like, there's nothing to latch on to with it. Like, it was good, and everyone did good things, and everyone in it was good. But, like, um, maybe it was just way too fucking long. But, like, there's nothing there, – there was no way I would tell anyone to watch this. Or, you know, <laughs> does that make sense? Yeah, no, no, I, 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 you know, you're, I, I got a different angle. I'm going to come at this. I, I've, I've really thought about this in a weird way. It's going to be different than most of my reviews, but I think you basically summed up a lot of my thoughts in a much better, more direct way without even, you feel like you don't have much to say, but I think you kind of said it all. But Matt, say something else. Yeah, so it sounds like you want to um, you want to close this out. So like, because you got you got something interesting to say. I don't yeah, really, I, I, I'm, hoping. I'm hoping. I don't. I don't really have anything so interesting to say. But I think I'm probably the high vote on this match. 
I I thought it was really good. Like I I, I really liked the network. Like I definitely agree it was too long. But that's also just like that's ROH in 2005, you know, like with their main events, like they had long main events. And I, you know, they, they really worked hard. You know, like Colt toned down a little bit of his um, his comedy. Like, you know, he did a little, little bit of shtick early. Like he would yell like, yabba dabba do before dropping a knee on Gibson's arms or like. He did a do do with the referee too. Yeah, do do with the referee, right? But like, I just, remember like, that. I remember something. Very. <laughs> hey. Very isolated moments. There was also a spot where he like he like pushed Gibson's legs apart to like stretch out his groin, and he yelled, "That can't feel good!" Like stuff like that. But like he wasn't overwhelming with the stick, and he pretty much dropped it completely after a while, except for I guess that dosi do. But you know there was good. You know there was you know the um, the um, the neck work um, that you know, and like Gibson like was you know he wouldn't let Colt. You know, get, um, you know, try to like do his comedy stuff. And there was a point where like he was almost being heelish because he was so annoyed at Cabana. Like, he, he actually got Cabana in like almost like a Cobra Clutch type move and he started yelling, You're out of your league, Colt Cabana. These people don't want to see you as champ, you know, which is like, you know, obviously a, you know, relatively heelish thing, but it, it felt like a world title match. And like, given that Gibson barely held the title and, you know, the week before, his title matches were a complete disaster. I was happy for him that he got this one, like, proper title defense. Um, you know, they, they did have some good moves down the spread stretch. Like, Gibson hit a top rope neckbreaker, which you do not see very often. Also, Gibson blocked a Colt 45, so Cabana hit this brutal buckle bomb and probably was the best near fall of the match. And, um, you know, eventually it ended up with, you know, like, fighting in and out of the choke and the... And the double underhook DDT and Gibson ended up winning with the choke after wearing down Cabana's neck. I liked it. I thought it was very good. Like I thought this was, you know, maybe not a four star match, but not far from it. That's like that's how much I liked it. So this match got me kind of thinking about a lot of things. So let's see if I can pull this together. Uh, when I was a kid, like I always thought more of a good thing was good i i uh, i always wanted the longer version of everything i if there was like a video game if i had a choice between buying two video games and i knew one would like take 10 hours to beat one would take 30 hours to beat i wanted the 30 hour one if i if you know if there was a movie i liked i definitely wanted the extended cut that had 20 minutes of extra scenes in it you know all that stuff this book had more pages than this book this is the book i better get and that extended with wrestling even like if if, I, if there was a mat two wrestlers i liked and they worked 10 minutes well then the the 60 minute match has to be five six times as good like i remember in fact when i was a kid the wrestling tape i rented the most probably there might have been one or two four. others yes yeah, because it was two tapes. It I, was think two. I think everyone rented that the most because it was two tapes. And it was boring. It's not. A, it's one of the worst major pay-per-views WWF ever ran. I would sometimes fall asleep watching it, but I would rent that tape more than any other because it was the most wrestling you could get for your money. And I just thought four hours is better. Four boring hours is better than two and a half good hours. Well, you, also, <laughs> you also have to admit, we, no one, none of us admitted to ourselves back then that WrestleMania 4 was boring. No, yeah. and I didn't really have a it critical taste. It had Macho Man. <laughs> you know? I, I don't even have a critical taste. Like, I, I, things bored me, but I didn't know they were boring me. Like, that's how dumb you are when you're a kid. Like, here's a little dumb thing. I can't believe I'm admitting this. I probably have said this somewhere before. When I was a kid once, this is a thought I had when I was a little kid. 
I like wrestling, but every time I watch King Mabel matches, I fall asleep and I don't know why. And I, I did not know the concept of boredom. Like, I just thought that maybe I was narcoleptic and it was, tri- it was triggered by Mabel. Like, and, I remember, like, I would rent some of these pay-per-views, like, back in the day, like, WWF pay-per-views, and I would sometimes, like, fast-forward through the matches to get to, like, the pre-matches and, like, the promos and stuff, and I realized, like, the reason I was doing that back then wasn't because I didn't like matches, it was because WWF wrestling was fucking boring. Like, their style <laughs> of wrestling was really boring compared to other wrestling. I, I think one thing, too, about it, going on a side thing, is, like, when you're a little kid and something you don't understand where it's not entertaining you, you kind of just assume... You, there must be something about it that you're not getting. Oh and like when you're I was older- just thinking about this the other day. Um, when I was a kid, like I don't know if you guys had the same thought. Like if something went wrong, like say with a video game, there was a glitch, right? Like yeah. or like there was a spot, like you got stuck or something. Like I would think I fucked up somehow. Yeah. <laughs> it was never that the game was wrong. How could it be wrong? It's a professional thing made by adults. It was clearly I did something wrong and I fucked it up. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I, I hear it. Same yeah. thing. Yeah. This sort of thing about myself. <laughs> <laughs> if I don't like something that other people like, I'm like, well, this is a problem with me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and when you're a kid, like, you just assume that everyone else knows what they're doing because you're told your whole little childhood that, like, you know, adults know better. You have to listen to them. So you're like, well these adults are having this wrestling match, it's got to be good. I don't care how I feel about it. Like, if I don't get it, well, I must be missing the the fun of Bob Backlund putting Bret Hart in the crossface chicken wing for 10 minutes straight. Like, um, i got to watch this a couple more times to make sure I, I figure out why it's good, actually. But um, anyway, obviously, I don't feel this way anymore. Um, I think part of that is also the last – we were the last generation to live without the Internet. I didn't get, like, high-speed cable internet. I was probably, I don't know, 12 or 13 and you know, man, at, way later than that for me. High speed cable, not until I went to college. High speed cable was way, yeah, college. We, we got it early where I we were lucky, and um, I had really shitty internet, like dial up yeah. uh, internet when I was like um, in ninety, fuck, like ninety three, ninety four. I but didn't get like, internet at all until ninety five, and it was real late ninety five, and it was just it was just a phone modem, like yeah, up until college, yeah. Remember trying to like look at a picture, and you had to like watch yeah. the picture load. Oh yeah, I used to have to like also <laughs> ask my parents, like, can I use the phone line to go on? Oh my god, online service. My like, parents would get so mad because I'd I'd be on the internet and they couldn't get through for a phone call, and they like made up a rule that like I had to go offline like every thirty minutes so that just to, to check voicemails. What saved me was that my older sister, like maybe a year or two after that, got her own phone line in her bedroom, and I we were able to hook that one up to the internet, and then she went to college, like very shortly after that, while I was still in high school for a few – like she was four years older than me. So I basically got to use her phone line as my internet line for a few years. Nice. Wow. But yeah, I, I feel like the internet's changed everything in the sense where now – you know, you're never bored. Like, once the internet came along, you know, you might not be happy in life at times, Lord knows, but, like, you're never bored. You have, like, basically every piece of entertainment ever made at your fingertips, to with some rare exceptions. But anyway, but back when there was still something called boredom, you always wanted the longer version of something, because it was just, you needed it to save off the boredom. Um, and then also, I think it's getting older, you realize that, like, hey, um, like, my time is limited and I would rather see the best version of something than the longest version of something. So 
that's all preamble to say, Matt, you're right. Like this is a good match. There's nothing in this. There's not a moment of this match. I think is bad. I, I, I think it's a good match. I think these are two really talented wrestlers working well together. There are some neat moments. There are some neat ideas. And between, but between those very good, maybe even occasionally great moments, there's a lot of stuff that's, that's not bad, but it's just decent. And to me, it dilutes the experience. At some point, this is 28 minutes of decent to great wrestling, and I would have preferred 18 minutes that was just the best stuff. I, I, and, I, and I'm saying young Trevor would have been so happy this was 28 minutes. He would have, if older Trevor said this would have been better with 18 minutes, he would have been man. If after I'm done watching this, I have to mow the lawn. I don't. I, this this should be an hour long. Fuck you. <laughs> and I would say, why, why are you such a potty mouth for a 12 year old? And he would say, fuck you. And I would say, okay. But anyway, now the older me is like. I just, I don't need to see this artificially lengthened out. Like this did, like we've reviewed long, ma- I agree, Matt, Law and Ring of Honor main events are long, but there are matches like the Joe Punk matches and stuff where it felt like they came up with a reason, like the length fit the story that they, that they came up with for the match. This feels like two guys that went out there, two talented guys, and they wrestled 28 minutes because they wanted to wrestle a long time. They were the main event, world title match. They had the carte blanche probably to do it. They wanted to do it. They did it. The, the match does not have a story or anything that feels like it justifies that length. And um, there are some neat moments. That, like I, my favorite parts actually are the early parts where Colt is constantly out wrestling Gibson on the mat, and Gibson keeps getting more and more frustrated. And he goes outside, he, like kicks the barricade, and then he comes out and he's like starts throwing strikes. So it's like, oh, this is interesting because like he's he's changing. You know, Colt beat him out of his own game. At one point, Colt even's like, ha ha, you know, like he's, he's tying that he out wrestled Gibson. So now Gibson gets pissed off. He's coming back in and throwing hard strikes. And then Colt even outbeats him in the war of strikes and Gibson bails to the floor again and like kicks the rail. And when he comes back in after that, he starts wrestling with a bit more of an edge. And I love that. I thought, oh man, this is going to be a really fun match. But then there's just a lot of moments in, in the rest of the match that are just like decent kind of context free wrestling and again it's that thing of there's really fun stuff in this match and then it's just a ton of other stuff that extends the length of it and i I, i'll do it's time for another classic trevor dame food analogy so but there there, there are restaurants where you get five 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 dishes like they'll give you like five little plates of food and none of them are enough to be a whole meal but they're all delicious they're fantastic if you had them and like if you had five little plates of food and like three are great and two are very good you'd leave going that's a great meal now imagine you instead of that meal it was 30 plates of food over the course of like three hours because there are restaurants that do that and they had the same five great dishes you loved and 25 just decent dishes. At the end of that meal, you'd be going, you wouldn't be saying, man, those five dishes were really great. You'd be saying, Jesus Christ, that's a lot of food. That was too much food. I'm just relieved it's over. Even though none of it was bad. And that's the way I felt with this match, where I felt like... My experience we can all relate to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never had a 30 I've never had, I, I've read about it in food blogs. I've never had that experience. I hope one day to be able to afford it one time. But... um I, I feel well, like let's start a GoFundMe for Trevor <laughs> first to get me to New York to do a show. Then we'll go out and eat like a 30 course tasting menu with like caviar that some molecular gastronomist has made taste like tobacco or something. I hope but, you're willing to go to a vegan restaurant, Trevor. Yeah, I'll, I'll go vegan. Anyway, anyway, moving on. We'll make our plans later. Um, you know, it's just, and, and I think some people will like this match more because of that. I, I thought this match, I thought there was threads that got left and it was just, 
it went too long. Um, I also thought Colt, you know, like, um, he got his neck worked over and he never sold it much to, to the degree that one point on commentary, like, Prezak and Leonard are basically like, maybe Colt doesn't want to show that he's hurt. Like, it was almost like they were trying to cover with the fact, that, like, why is this guy not selling, you know, when, when, when Gibson keeps working it over? And, and I think that maybe the best review of this match is I went way too long and I think a more succinct way to put this match the way more like the way Steve did no reviews is, are better when they're longer Trevor <laughs> you see that's <laughs> but, but 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 uh yeah um anyway you know the young me will love this review but anyway I would just say um the start of the match crowds fairly into it they're into both guys they get quiet for most of the match they're always respectful they're never turning on it but they're kind of quiet and then those last few minutes were uh or last moments were uh like you said, Matt, the like moment of the match is where Gibson hits the neckbreaker off the top rope. It is this the it is if they flicked a switch? Because from that moment on, the crowd is super hot into the match for the rest of the way, and I feel like that's a sign that the match wasn't worked great for at least for that crowd because the crowd was hot and then quiet, and then once they did something that really got them into it, they were hot again. And it just felt like they had kind of half lost the crowd and for a lot of this match, despite the fact that the match was never bad. And I, 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 I guess that's just my review. And also, okay, one more important thing to say early on, Colcabana's gum falls out of his mouth when he's in a camera lock and he just pushes his face down and grabs the gum and puts it back in his mouth. And we've seen a few ROH guys do that. Most offensive moment of the night, folks, most offensive moment of the night. I got to say the crowd was only hot when I was awake. (laughs) <laughs> See exactly, it's a match that put poor Stephen Graham to sleep. But no, I, I, oh Matt, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, it's a good match though. It, it, it's a good match. It's a good match that I think could have been a great match. But I, well, we're going to be watching a lot of long Brian Danielson main events over the next uh, few shows or many shows. Very curious to see if this rings true with his matches too. Like where we could say, like you know what, didn't have to be that long. I'm very curious. I, some of those reviews, like I've been looking at, there are a lot of live reports that will say crowd was bored but got into it by the end on a lot of those Danielson matches coming up. Yeah. Like, which I wouldn't be surprised if that's how it goes. Yeah, I know people don't want to say anything negative about Daniel Bryan because he seems like such a great person and he is well, such a great wrestler. One well, flaw he has. So obviously, you, oh, you yeah, sorry, are, yeah. I'm fucking conditioned. This is um, the Ring of Honor podcast. <laughs> That's true. Um, one flaw he has uh, is that he likes his matches to go too long sometimes. That's like one thing you can say negative about him for sure. Well, I also think sometimes a lot of reasons why matches go long is people, lots of, some wrestlers really like wrestling. So it's like they're going to wrestle as long as they can sometimes, not as long as. That's probably it for yeah. him, to be honest. <laughs> well, even that's probably why this match went almost half an hour. It's like, hey, we're in the main event. We kind of can do what we want. Why not we wrestle half an hour, you know? And I'm sure that's fun. I'm sure that's a blast. It's not always the best, makes for the absolute best match, in my opinion. But after the match, we join Homicide backstage. Sugar Sean Price follows him as he rushes out of the building and attacks Colt Cabana in the parking lot. At least we assume it's Colt because the parking lot is so dark that you can't really tell who (laughs) Homicide is attacking. Uh, Homicide puts the boots to him, and then he calls Colt a clown, Jay Leno, and Conan O'Brien. Homicide then walks away, ranting about being disrespected as Sugar Sean Price calls for help. Um... This is, I, I just love that, again, you know, like, 
it, this is going to be a blood feud, but yet I was still laughing because like homicides like, how you like that? You Jay Leno, you Conan O'Brien. It's like, <laughs> it was just so fucking goofy and you can't see it. It's a, the, I mean, the fact that you can't see it, it's just so classic. Like, it's just like, like, just, I mean, you know your limitations. Just don't book a thing in the dark. <laughs> I, I do remember as we were leaving the building, uh, that people were murmuring that they, uh, that homicide attacked Cole Cabana outside. So, um, so that was a thing that, uh, that they did film. So the, like, uh, that, I guess people saw it and kind of relayed that message into people um, at some point. I don't know. I guess we stayed late after <laughs> after the match, or they filmed it earlier. Than, they probably filmed it earlier. No, no, you're 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 right on, Stephen. Because I have a, a note. This is the last note from a different live report to the PW Insider. Ray Haywood. He wrote, after the show, there were a dozen a dozen or so fans waiting for wrestlers to come out of the back to their cars for pictures and autographs. Cole Cabana came out looking really tired and worn out after his match. A fan asked him for an autograph and a picture, and he agreed. Just as he was about to sign, Homicide jumped him from behind. Gabe Sapolsky was right behind him, camera in hand, so obviously there's a setup for an angle. I have to say it was one of the coolest things to see happen as a wrestling fan. We were all caught completely off guard, and depending on who you believe, so was Colt. I'm pretty sure he was working all of us, but he kept mumbling how mad he was and that neither Carrie Silken nor Gabe told him that was going to happen. (laughs) (laughs) Overall, though, it was a it was an awesome show. And that was a really cool way to end the night. So I love that they went that far that Colt's like trying to work those fans and being like, they didn't tell me or on the slim chance he's telling the truth, they literally shot an angle and didn't tell Colt they were going to shoot an angle. I, I have to assume it was him working the fans. But either way, that's eight flavors of ridiculous. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, and that brings us to the end of the show. That was Dragon Gate Invasion. Uh, Steven, what did you think of revisiting it? And do you, did, I mean, did you have any vague memories between your poor pre-CPAP level, you know, adult sleep-needing brain? Did you remember the show back then? How did it compare to today? Um, uh, I, I definitely remember, uh, like I, I think I mentioned earlier about the Daniel stuff. Um, but none of and uh, seeing Sema, uh, that that kind of got re-triggered um, as we we're going through. Um, Speaking of trigger, there's a lot of triggering stuff on this show. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely is, and I, I didn't catch up on that at the time. Uh, weirdly, the Nigel Joe match has like no memory in my head, um, so I'm not sure what's going on with that. Um, but like, it's a show where every like nothing's bad, everything is decently good. Like, you could probably if you went in there and you said, "Oh yeah, I rated every match as three and a quarter." I'd be like, yeah, sure. <laughs> like, and that's not a bad show, but that's not like a show you're going to go out of your way to see. Uh, and I, I definitely say don't go out of your way to see it because of all the other, um, I don't know, the four or five horrible things that happen on it, depending on, <laughs> depending on which minority you are, you, you were probably attacked. Um, so there that's was, fun. Steven, there were, I think what you're trying to say is there was something for everybody on this show. <laughs> there was but, something but, for but, God. But, <laughs> but, 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 but Matt, um, We've covered a bunch of obviously, but lately some more B show type things and stuff, and been in a little bit of you know some of the shows we were talking about, like the undercards at least have been a bit of a lull on, on some of these shows. I would say this: I don't know if this is the worst show we've seen. I don't even think it's as necessarily as bad, maybe 
as the show we just watched, I, I wouldn't call this a bad show. I agree with Steve. It's not bad. I think at this point, 2005 Ring of Honor can't really be bad. But what I would ask you, Matt, having been on this journey side by side with me holding hands, is um, don't I, don't think it, <laughs> I, I don't think any Ring of Honor show we've watched maybe has felt as much like a house show as this one. Yeah, I mean, this show was way better than Night of the Grudges 2. Like, I mean, yeah. it's not even close. I mean, although I don't think there was a match as good as that uh, that uh, Soccer Riot match, right, um, on this. But, yeah, no, this was, like, despite having a major title change. Yeah. Right, between two big stars that would lead to a pretty, pretty memorable title reign. And despite the fact that there were, you know, one really big star from Japan coming in and one future star from Japan coming in. And, you know, AJ and Daniels both on the show, which they are not every time. Um, yeah, this felt like a really, really huge B-show. Like, that's impressive that you could have all that stuff and still feel like a B-show. And you're right, like, the, the wrestling was was quality for the most part. It just – and I like the main event a lot. Um, but there was a lot of problematic stuff on there, even more than usual, I think. And um, – and the crowd wasn't super hot. Like, I, I think this was a step up, but like, this is definitely, we're in like a doldrum period of like, this is just like, not an exciting time. I will say this, that's about to end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we'll end with the next show, but I would just say it's, it's a, it's a weird show because I would say as, as tar, far as a show, like from being to end quality, it's one of the lower points of the year, although not on the Grudges 2 level, but it's still not a bad show because I don't think Rain Varner could have a truly awful show in 2005 at this point with their depth. But at the same time, like, it feels, again, it's, it, and like that, you kind of hit on it. Like, it's a weird mix. Like, it feels like a B show, yet it's actually pretty in some ways significant. Like, it's weird how it can be both. It's a real weird thing. Like, I don't know if we'll cover many, if any shows that both feel like a B show, but we can also say like, here's like two or three important things or developments or noteworthy things that took place. But that's what this show, that's what Dragon Gate Invasion is. And also it's a show, I think it's a show that might trick people because you might look at the box and see Shima versus, you know, AJ Styles, you might see James Gibson versus uh Band to a degree, and you might see even like Daniels and 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 uh, I mean Homicide and, and Joe and Nigel. Yeah, and Joe and Nigel, and you might think this is gonna this looks like an all timer card, and on paper it does. It's not that level of show. Like it, it's a show you need to adjust your expectations for. But so when you walk, so when you're walking through the the video store and you see the box of Dragon Gate Invasion, don't rent it. Go for WrestleMania four instead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You always go for the double. As as our good friend Matt Justin Shapiro would say, WrestleMania Four was double wide, double deep, like Oyoko's in the casket. That's right. Um, so <laughs> that brings us to plugs. Stephen, we we talked up top about some of your podcasts, and we talked up top about the the greatest wrestler ever project. But plug everything again if you want, and plug you know your social media, any anything you want to plug. Now the floor is yours, sir. Okay, cool. Um, I think the big thing I want to plug is uh, we're doing something cool. Um, I've been doing Joshi Night, where I've been going through uh, the history of Joshi uh, pretty much for like a year and a half. Um, and watching most things, and we've gotten to Dream Slam, which is one of the most famous shows of all time. And my good friend Cad has got the promos translated, so subtitled. Wow. Um, yeah, uh, and he did that for Dream Rush, and that ruled. 
but we also have it for Dreamsland. We watched the first half today, which is kind of like the boring undercard. Um, but next week, uh, October 24th at 3 p.m., um, definitely anyone who wants to come and watch uh, Dream Slam, you, you know, Kandori Hokuto is the greatest match ever. There's a lot of other big matches on that. And you get the promos with subtitles. You get to see how awesome Hokuto is as a promo. Um, come join the Discord. You can come and uh, chat with us and watch that uh, on that Sunday. That's awesome. Um, just join the Discord for conversations. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, my Twitter account that uh, basically talks about trans rights now only uh, is Stephen Graham TWS, but you can join Project GWE for uh, for um, updates on the project. Um, and you should probably, oh, uh, maybe not Tawe is, is the name of the podcast that will be coming um, <laughs> October, November, uh, which will be the GWE podcast. I have a great guest lined up, and I'm also having um, – I think it's going to be a fun monthly segment where I'm going through each year and I'm going to uh, make a top 25 list of the wrestlers of the year. Um, and I, I think that will be a fun project um, to do over the next couple of years. Uh, and, you know, you should probably donate to PFLAG as well. So. And I'll, first off, that's obviously the most important thing. But I'll just say, like, people, you know, be subscribed to the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network and be on the lookout for that show because if if the podcast Steven and so many other people did for the last project or is any indication, that's going to be one of the better, especially if you like not talking about modern wrestling but anything in the past, that's going to be one of the better wrestling podcasts probably that's going to come out in recent years and um, going to make us look bad probably, but oh well. Uh, so for us, at Trevor Dame on Twitter is my Twitter handle, at MayorMGF for Matt. We have uh, our email is through the years that's t-h-r-o-h at gmail.com and we have a thread on the prowrestlingonly.com plugs forum and that's about it so next time it will be just me and matt we'll be covering a show that is double y double d in fact i think if you bought it back in the day on vhs it did come on two tapes so it's gotta be good in fact actually spoiler it actually is good um it will be glory by honor for nearly four hours long so much happens on that show. Uh, the, the Joe, I mean, the, the Jay Lethal low key feud comes to an end. Um, the AJ Styles, Jimmy Rave, at least the singles point portion of their feud comes to an end. Mick Foley says goodbye to Ring of Honor. And, uh, a little guy named Brian Danielson makes his return to wrestling. Where, where have we seen that lately? That, 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 that's something that doesn't ever <laughs> happen. And, um, he'll be wrestling for the world title against James Gibson in a match that goes over half an hour that I'm sure I will just hate. But, uh, that's that. And, and so for all of us here, until next time, have a good time. Have a great time.